Hello and welcome to episode 397 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and uh, ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary friends, we've made it through another year. Uh, this is the, oh boy, one, two, ninth year of Retro Encounter uh, airing. If, I mean, if you, if you count inclusive all the way back to, 20, to 2015. And every year on Retro Encounter, we do a year in review episode where we talk about our favorite games and podcasts of the previous year. So that's what this is. Who's joining me this year? They are Jonathan Logan. Hello, everyone. Zach Wilkerson. Hello. And Alex Frenichek. Hello. Alex, Zach, Jono. Um, I, I think I, the language around the video games of 2023 20, I've been reading the past weeks or months are, are very positive. Like, it's almost, almost everyone agrees that this was a very strong year uh, for playing video games. Do you, do you basically agree, or um, were there one too many mass layoffs to really uh, you know, put a positive spin <laughs> on it? Well, it depends on what you're going for. If you're talking about the releases and the quality of the games that were released, absolutely, this has been a stellar year for games. If you're talking about the industry as a whole, yeah, it's been kind of rough for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the releases, I think it's been absurd. Like, I think that when I think about my own personal game of the year, and I haven't played everything, I haven't played Starfield. Um, it, it likely never will. Yeah, I, I mean, like, it's, it's uh, Bethesda has convinced me to never uh, ever engage with them again. But my point is, like... Um, there are at least like four or five games that would have won my game of the year most years. And this year is insane. Uh, I think it might be the best year for RPGs ever. And that's saying something because 2017 is out there. Yeah, when we did a best year for RPGs episode some time ago, I think 2017 was our number one at the very end. It was also the like the only one after after 2010 in the top uh, four or something. But uh, yeah, th- th- there's a lot of modern classics, a lot of super uh, well-received RPGs in 2023. Uh, and, and I basically agree with that assessment. And my favorite game of the year probably wasn't even an RPG. But yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, oh, do you want to do you want to bring something up, John? I was going to say oh, that, yeah, Go ahead, then. Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, one of the things that really makes this year uh, special, and I'm it doesn't have me worried for 2024. I'm sure 2024 is going to be fine. But we got a lot of games this year that had been in the works and had been hype and had been talked about for years and years and years. Uh, and surprisingly, most of them actually came through on their promise. Like we were expecting epic, incredible experiences and we got them. A lot of sequels, but you know, Baldur's Gate 3. I guess Baldur's Gate 3 is technically a sequel, but it's been so long since 2 that it might as well be a standalone. It almost like feels re- more like a sequel to uh, Divinity: The Original Sin Two than to Baldur's Gate Two, but, uh, but but I mean we'll we'll talk about Baldur's Gate Three very soon. Yeah, we will. But like everything, Spider Man Two, uh, uh, Tears of the Kingdom, like these are games that have been anticipated for many many years now, and they came through. So I'm a little bit, I'm looking at 2024 not skeptically, but thinking I can can it match this year because we got so much that had been promised for so long and it delivered. I don't know if 2024 can do that. I mean, realistically, 2024 can take a backseat and I would be happy just to spend some time <laughs> actually finishing some of these games because like, no, yeah, 20, 2024 is not in the backseat. It's in the back. It's in the trunk. So the backseat is full of all the games <laughs> from 2023. 
Yeah, and it wasn't even like just a matter of like these being like very very quality RPGs that came out this year. I'm also just impressed by the the sheer variety of RPG flavors we got this year because it's just showing so much growth of the genre, so much of the genre's ability to to pull from other genres and incorporate them into uh, what what they're doing and and playing to like different strengths, like like from like the first person kind of. Uh, cinematic role playing of cyberpunk to like, I mean, if you're a fan, the uh, ultra simulation, massive procedural generation of Starfield, or like the the blistering action of FF16. Like, there's just so many different, like the traditionalness of of Sea of Stars or Octopath 2. Like, just so many different things to to kind of experiment with and see what uh, how the genre is is evolving. So. Yeah, uh, 2024, uh, I don't need any more RPGs. Uh, we, can, we can take a break for a while. Well, I mean, I've had a glance at our upcoming... And then there's uh, February. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I've had a glance at our upcoming most anticipated games of 2024 feature. And let me tell you, it doesn't really slow down. Because, I mean, the two games I'm looking forward to the most next year both come out in... the in, They come out in January and February. So I gotta, I'm gonna like finish playing all my RPGs. You in forgot about April. I did not forget about <laughs> April, but I'm allowed. To, I, I'm, I'm allowed to put Aoden third. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, like 2024 is not going to slow down. But uh, staying in the present a little bit, 2023 has been excellent for players of RPGs, and we're going to highlight a few of our favorites of the year. Each of us has uh, brought two games to this show and tell, tell episode. We're going to um, talk about them in some detail and then, you know, shout out a couple at the end. And then I'll tell you about what the future holds for Retro Encounter. Um, and this is again, this is one of our sort of annualized episodes. So it might be a little bit longer than uh, than most, but we'll see how it goes so far. Does uh, anyone want to talk about one of their favorite 2023 games first? I, I can go and get us started with Final Fantasy 16. Um, just, game... just throw it out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I. You know, I, I I sort of expected, I guess, to some degree, because I was the one who reviewed Final Fantasy 16, that uh, it, and it's an interesting experience to review like such a massive game before it releases. And I don't know what the, the reaction is going to be, but I guess I sort of expected that I might be on the slightly higher end. And I was like, I guess, higher on it than most, but it, it, people still generally liked it, I guess. Um, but, you know, I, I watched uh, my partner play through the last half of it after uh all the reviews dropped and the game dropped and everything else and i I, i've played through a lot of it since then and i am still convinced um after all this time that it is the pinnacle of single player final fantasy games um and i know that there's at least one person here that disagrees with me but i I, (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know yeah (laughs) um but i feel like the way that 16 blends um the action which is so fun um and so smooth and so just delightful to engage with with i think the most thoughtful storytelling i i hate to use the word mature because oftentimes that is um supplanted with like dark um and i i i hate when that happens uh but like thoughtful storytelling in the side quests especially in the latter half um, but also in the game itself, and it's not perfect, but I have plenty, plenty of nitpicks with it, which I have delineated on this podcast and other podcasts many times. But I think that it is so thoughtful in the way it storytells and the way that it connects it with um, really super fun combat 
makes it, I think, a super highlight of this year. And I think it is an amazing game. Um, and I, I love that other people don't agree with that. Honestly, I really do. Um, but I, I think it's phenomenal. The thing about FF16, and uh, we, we did a podcast, um, spoiler casting FF16, a few months ago, Zach, that both you and I were on. I, I think that it is almost unsurpassed in RPG spectacle. Like, this is a triple-A-ass RPG. Everything's gorgeous. The, um, the, the character performances are both sort of beautiful and nuanced. The, there's, I, think, I think the dialogue is pretty strong. This, the side quests start out a little slow, but get better the more you invest uh, time into each of their threads. And, uh, and, and, and things like, because the, uh, the battles are semi-choreographed, like, like instead of just throwing you into a, a fight and having enemies react cert- certain ways, um, like, like there will be musical cues to match different points of the fight and, uh, and, and, and set pieces to punctuate different parts of the fight that I, I think these are some of the best boss fights Final Fantasy has ever done. And I include that, I include like the best FF14 fights and my favorite um, FF for FF bosses right. from the from the sixteen and thirty two better and, and the best parts of the fourteen fights are all spectacle too yeah like, even if you're like you're in the savage raiding scene which I am like it's still <laughs> about spectacle <laughs> it's still just like it, it's like the boss fights are like mechanically fascinatingly interesting like something like I don't know um I I can't think of anything off the top of my head but like it, it's it's all about the spectacle and it leans so hard into that and I will say that like even though the DLC I think is fine um it has the best 16 boss fight and when i say best 16 boss fight that is a high bar i yeah i i i um i, I should mention i uh i even said this on the spoiler cast i think the second to last boss in 16 is not great but if you if you put that one aside like the bosses kept getting better and better in that game and i couldn't believe my eyes with every new one uh and i i haven't played the dlc yet but i am very very close to just ordering the season pass because I, there will be a time where I want to play yeah. a lot more of FF16. If you're into the combat, you're 100% going to enjoy the DLC. And yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said. I think the side quests, I actually think some of the side quests are genuinely very moving um, towards the end. And I know a lot of people criticize the side quests. Like, like, oh, you walk from this person to this person to this person. But like, I don't know. Like, isn't that most side quests? I, I don't understand. Like, most people are like, oh, they're not mechanically interesting. Like, you say mechanically interesting you mean like difficult to solve because like i found that <laughs> super frustrating like i don't know i'm playing elden ring right now and i'm like i want to fight all the bosses but like i need to look up a guide to go figure out most of like how to fight like mog for example like i i'm not interested in that i don't want to go do many games like i think that's all boring so for me personally final fantasy 16 hits hits all the things that i am i care about in an rpg and the, the combat is very flashy and uh and um uh, and and pull and pulling off like big hits or a or a, an enemy guard break that leads to bigger hits is extre- is not that challenging to pull off but it's hugely satisfying when you land one and if you're a bit of a challenge hound or want to get deeper into the mechanics there's a there's those trial rooms that have you sort of push the different mechanics of each of the spells or skills to a to a limit so it, it's I, I, I don't think it, it's the combat is both hugely fa- flashy and mechanically rich while also being a gentle enough learning curve that I don't I don't, I don't think it's overcomplicated, which is a, a, a weird tightrope to walk. And, I, and I'm never going to compare this to, you know, the intricate fighting of even of like a Souls game or something. But uh, 
yeah, everything about the action and spectacle of FF16, I really loved. And I'm not sure it's my game of the year, but it's a, content- a contender for it. So. But uh, Alex, I, I know that uh, there is a dissenting voice uh, sandwiched between Alex and, and I'm sorry, sandwiched between Zach and I's uh, overall praise for FF16. So um, what, what are your overall feelings of it? Yeah, I, I don't. I really don't enjoy being the the, the downer, the hater in the room. Uh, so listening to to you guys like saying what's so cool about this game, uh, it, it makes me wish I liked the game better. Um, I really went to this game uh, excited about it, uh, open minded to this more kind of action focus it was taking. Um, and uh, the first couple hours were really good, uh, established some really good character work that got me invested in the world and everything, but um, I just really feel that the the aspects of this game where it's trying to be more of an RPG and that I'm thinking of like the the side quests, um, how many there are, and kind of the very MMO-style design approach that they take, um, which usually involves a lot of kind of uh, like you, you're walking around your your hub, your hideaway, uh, you're meeting the different people, and, and I appreciate that the side quests are trying to uh, contextualize and flesh out the inhabitants of the hideaway that uh, you, as Clive, uh, are trying to to get to know. Um, it's really it was really neat, and I, I like having that extra context because it makes me feel more invested in. Uh, what I'm doing outside of, um, or rather within like the the main game and the main quest itself. But the fact that ultimately what I was doing with those side quests is fast traveling to different points. I'm not really engaging with the world at all. Um, And just like kind of doing like these basic little battles or kind of picking up like ingredients or, or something like that and fast traveling back to the hideaway. I didn't feel connected to this game's world the way I have for a lot of previous Final Fantasies, which is honestly probably my biggest criticism of it. And it also extends to kind of the um, open zone design, as they called it, um, which is basically, it might as well be like an FF13 corridor-like hallway, in my opinion, because I never felt really uh, compelled to or rewarded for going off the beaten path of kind of my my main quest travel point. Um, so the fact that there are just like these extra bits of space you can feel free to wander around in uh, didn't really do anything to me. It didn't help me connect to the world because there weren't many sites to see that fleshed out the world the way it would in like something like Elden Ring, where you got this. Uh, again, it, it, Elden Ring also has kind of these like open zones rather than like kind of a singular open world space. Um, but they they had so much more of an identity in that game compared to FF16, <laughs> and I feel like that's where I was kind of really starting to feel the disappointment. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, the combat rules. If this was just like a twenty to thirty hour long action game with more narrative elements, I think it would have been incredible. I think it would have been the the kind of masterpiece some people see in it. Um, but ultimately, like. Even like with the combat, it took so long to get going. Like I think for the first ten hours of this game, I only had like the Phoenix abilities to play around with, and otherwise, basically your comboing is just mashing X, uh, and then using your your abilities when the cooldowns were there. If this was just a, a faster paced game as a whole, you get those extra abilities quicker, uh, and and you'd overall just like wouldn't get those lulls that at least I experienced from some of the side quest design and some of that 
open zone design they were going for. Again, like this is a game with a lot of cool ideas. Um, and the, the combat absolutely rips. The, the boss fight design is incredible. The spectacle, as you guys were talking about it, um, is a thing to behold, truly. Uh, but there's just so many times where I just felt in between those bits of brilliance, just honestly bored and disappointed with this game. I mean, I think that's a, that's a fair response. Uh, I, I, I like, and it's also about like what you want, right? Like I, um, I want to experience everything in one playthrough. <laughs> Um, and I think that 16 allows you to do that. Whereas I feel like something like Elden Ring, I, I hate to use that as a, as a comparison point, but it's like a game I'm playing right now. Like, I, I don't love it as a comparison point because I think they're completely different kinds of game. That's you're not wrong. Um, but I, I I'm using it as a comparison point because I'm talking about like wanting to experience everything without having to look up a guide for it. So that's where I'm coming from. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to experience everything and 16 allowed me to do that. And also like, um, like I, I, I guess I feel like a, a lot of other games like are fast travel heavy, but like this one in particular allowed me to like use fast travel, heavy mechanics in a way that like allowed me to experience everything it was doing, but like it, it's also doing storytelling in a different kind of way. Right. So like, Absolutely, I, yeah. I, I I I think that um it, it it's I, I totally get what you're saying like and I have plenty of criticisms myself um but uh yeah I I think it's totally fair it's I think it's a question of what you're looking for and I like a, a sort of more straightforward experience sometimes I am completely and utterly agnostic when it comes to modern day Final Fantasy games I haven't played them uh to be honest I don't have a ton of interest in playing sixteen. But what I find incredibly fascinating about Final Fantasy 16 is that I feel, I might be wrong about this, and I might you guys might disagree with me, I feel like Square Enix for the last few years has been trying to push Final Fantasy as a series into more of a, uh, a crowd-pleasing dynamic, appeal to a wider audience. I don't mean that in a selling out kind of way, I just mean focusing on the action rather than what Dragon Quest is doing, which is really pushing the classic RPG-style turn-based combat. Mm. Um, and I cannot help but imagine that Square Enix was somewhat disappointed by the reception of Final Fantasy XVI, given how divisive a game it turned out to be for many people. I don't think they were expecting that. I feel like they were probably thinking, we got a crowd pleaser on our hands. Everyone's going to love this. And it turned into an incredibly polarizing title for 20, uh, 2023, I, surprisingly I think so. I think it's only polarizing if you like look at the online reaction. Because because uh, this game was critically a, a pretty big hit, and it was it sold very well on the PS5 despite only coming out on the PS5. But I, but I I agree that Square Enix is like they're focusing on a few of their core properties and trying to make them blockbusters. Like like this is a Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of game where it's trying to appeal to a lot of people at once and sort of and uh, emphasize like 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 the visuals and action and uh, and spectacle. And I don't mean to I don't mean to minimize it, but also the storyline being the the joke being game of crystals like they were they were hoping to capitalize on a style of storytelling that was extremely popular while this thing was being designed. Yeah, that's also probably true. Like um, uh, if you uh, I haven't seen a lot of Game of Thrones, but I I, I definitely understand the comparison. I'm not, I think that like Final Fantasy 16 is definitely a triple a huge budget game trying to uh like trying to create mass appeal um for the most part but i also think it's very successful in doing in doing that like it's i mean 
when it comes to big expensive RPGs, I think the only one that on uh, this year that uh, the only ones better than it are also on this list. But anyway, we we can't have this episode be three hours long, so we got to keep moving on. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who uh, who wants to bring in another game to the front? Yeah, I'll do it. Um, okay, well, let's talk about uh, the Legend of Zelda: Tears of the Kingdom, uh, which is another you know long running uh, RPG action uh, adventure game series, which we cover on the site. Um, obviously, uh, Tears of the Kingdom was a massive hit this year. It's a direct sequel to Breath of the Wild. Uh, and I think that it might be my favorite gaming experience. It definitely my favorite gaming experience of 2023. This was my game of the year, but also probably of the last many years, I think what it did, it did exceptionally well. Uh, it took everything that was in Breath of the Wild and it expanded it. It gave, yes, it used the same world as Breath of the Wild. Kingdom of Hyrule is the same world map, but they removed all of Link's old abilities and gave him four new ones, which essentially are game-breaking abilities. It's like they took the developer tools and they just gave it to Link as, as his tools. And as such, you have abilities such as you can uh, connect any two items in the world together. Uh, you can connect any two weapons together to make more powerful weapons or your like items to shields, things like that. Uh, you can now ascend you can go through uh you can go through items and uh ceilings and entire mountains and basically swim up them to come out on the other side uh exceptional levels of gameplay the characters are terrific i think it told a much better story than breath of the wild mm-hmm. uh breath of the wild in my mind i said this in the i said this uh for years and i said this in the review uh the problem with breath of the wild is it very much is the game itself is the after party like it's a hundred years after for anybody else, the game uh, where this was the big battle. This was every, and this is the fallout of that battle. Everything that happens in Breath of the Wild is Link picking up the pieces of the disaster that happened a hundred years before that we never saw. With Tears of the Kingdom, it's much more active and the threat is immediate. We still have scenes in the past, but rather than showing us what we missed, the scenes in the past are providing context to what's currently happening uh, in the present. And that slight change in flashback, uh, the use of flashbacks makes the experience of Tears of the Kingdom a much more active one than Breath of the Wild. In terms of the graphics, it, I mean, it basically looks like Breath of the Wild. Um, basically the same graphics, uh, similar styles of music. The music is very sparse, but it comes in at perfect points. Uh, it dramatically expands the world. Like, yeah, the world of Hyrule is the same, but not only do you have uh, lots of sky islands now that you can explore, you also have a completely uh, a dark world, if you will, underground. That is a mirror of the uh, the light world above, and it's so big. It is such a big game. I've easily I can't remember my exact time. I think it's 120 hours. So, uh, is this going to be the second game this episode that we keep comparing to Elden Ring in that in that regard? I think that Elden Ring is. I haven't played Elden Ring because I I'm afraid of uh I'm afraid of uh, Souls likes, um, but. Yeah, I mean, Elden Ring and uh, Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, I think, all fall into a very similar style of uh, action-adventure RPG. I, I was um, specifically referring to the fact that Elden Ring has a detailed under, underground that's... Uh, oh, I didn't know that. that, that that's, that's about as big as the overworld. But, um, but um, Alex and Zach have played more Elden Ring than I, so they could probably elaborate better than I could. Mm. Um, this is not a flawless game. There are some 
points in it that uh, there's some difficulty spikes that are a little bit weird. Some of the abilities, especially the abilities you get with your companions, uh, are a little bit clunky, especially when you have like your four companions running alongside or yeah, running alongside you and they sometimes they can really, really crowd the screen. Um, it's not a perfect game, but it is an exceptional experience, I believe. Uh, and I, it's my game of the year by a, a country mile. I just, I just really, really love this game. I think that they took everything that I loved from Breath of the Wild, they improved on it, they brought it to the next level. Uh, and I don't really know where they're going to take Zelda from this point. <laughs> I am really excited to see where that is. Yeah, it's funny. I, I haven't played a single solitary moment of Tears of the Kingdom just because I, I you know, I wasn't a huge fan of Breath of the Wild. But mm. I think that um, one of the things I, I think is interesting about it is that it, um, outside of like people joking about like, hey, it's like DLC, like it, it builds so well and in a different way on what Breath of the Wild was. Like you think about like Breath of the Wild was, it's like all about exploration and just like, hey, you can like you want to jump up that mountain, you go do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives you the tools to do even more of that. And I think that even though like, I know that, um, breath of the wild and tears of the kingdom are not necessarily my thing. Like, I think that it's, it's so remarkable in that it, it, it finds a way to like, see what something did well and build on that. Like literally, uh, in mm-hmm. this case, um, in a really fascinating way. And I think that, um, gosh, it, it, it's amazing to me that like, um, in any other year, I feel like Tears of the Kingdom is such a remarkable achievement that it would be like, a, a, this is clearly our game of the year. Um, whereas here, it's it's a little more challenging. And uh, I, I think that your review did a remarkable job of of capturing what the game is um, based on what I've seen of it. And uh, yeah, it, it's just like such a cool thing. It's going to be an interesting, like games of the year are starting to come out. Ours is coming out in a few weeks. Uh, and it's going to be, I think it's going to be for the first time in a long time, different on almost, from almost every outlet. Like there are so many choices of games of the year this year that are completely and utterly legitimate. Uh, and incidentally, when I say Tears of the Kingdom is my game of the year, that's not me saying that it's the best game of the year because I haven't played everything this year. But I have trouble imagining that any experience would eclipse it in terms of what it, what it did to me as I was playing. Yeah, I, I had a, a pretty interesting experience with Tears of the Kingdom because there were, like, as as a whole, like, it's an absolutely brilliant game that uh, is mechanically such a such a fun playground, um, and uh, so many of the other reasons that you already highlighted, Jono, is just uh, just goes to show like what a what a creative and rewarding game this is. Um, but I did have a bit of a a love-hate relationship with it at least at first because um i I was like a huge huge breath of the wild fan and i think some of my most memorable experiences from breath of the wild were just kind of taking my time going through the world uh tricking in the aesthetics uh feeling like link's feet pattering on the on the grass or climbing up a mountain just to like see get a better vantage point of the world and see where i can glide um, mm-hmm. It was just like such a unique experience from that kind of purely exploratory standpoint. And I think that's what really stood out about that game for me. Um, I, I Like speaking of like fast traveling, I feel like I, I hardly fast traveled in Breath of the Wild at all because just the way the world was designed, uh, it, it didn't feel necessary. And like none of the 
the story or, or side quest design uh, necessarily necess- necessitated it, at least uh, for the most part. Um, with Tears of the Kingdom, I felt that kind of grounded uh, relationship with the world was just kind of thrown out the window because of those like basically game-breaking tools that the game gives you. This is not a game about immersing yourself and wandering through a space. This is a game about thinking of creative ways of conquering that space of like launching yourself of of giving giving yourself like uh like a little airplane to fly around on and seeing how far it can get you uh and just experimenting and having a lot of fun with those things and in that sense um i, I was a, a slightly uh disillusioned with it at first but i quickly grew to really appreciate it as its own experience and the fact that they're able to take the world of breath of the wild and add just basically add to it iterate on it and create what was basically a completely new experience with its world is absolutely it's outstanding and at this point i'm just like having a blast with the game and appreciating everything it's added and and one more thing that i will add is once i started finally convincing myself to just take some time uh in like the different settlements of the game uh and going a bit more slowly through the space because at first i was just like overwhelmed by the amount of content of the game and thinking i just had to go from point to point as quickly as possible but there's so much that they added just in terms of like little npcs interactions that you'll discover and rediscover you'll like see someone again on like the other side of the map or you'll be like going through one of the towns and uh you'll you'll discover like a, a lot of like individuality to like the npcs and also you'll you'll discover like quests that you don't even get like quest notifications for like mm-hmm. you'll just like hear an npc like give you like a piece of information and if you like choose to pursue that you'll get like a whole quest line about it that reveals more uh lore and detail about that uh, uh that locale so that aspect of the game was what really blew my mind after i was like over like 50 hours in i started mm-hmm. noticing things like that and, and just being like constantly impressed with what this game had to offer um but on the other hand like it, it's still just such an overwhelming experience i still haven't finished it um, but I, I can't really frame that as a negative when there's so much this game has accomplished and, and so much you can do and so many different ways you can approach its world. It's just, uh, it's, it's undeniably impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. My, my issue with Tears of the Kingdom is hardly an issue at all. It's, it's, um, I was just a little bit overwhelmed. I mean, I, I, that's, I'm that's not easy to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I played it for about 10 hours. I was really impressed. I was mostly having a good time. But there was the total lack of direction and the, you know, still and still learning the the, the four new verbs of uh, of Breath of the Wild. I'm sorry, of Tears of the Kingdom, as it were, compared to the Breath of the Wild was uh, was just a lot to take in. And um, and then but but I, I think it came out uh, like three weeks before Street Fighter six and then Street Fighter six came out three weeks before Final Fantasy sixteen. And um, Tears of the Kingdom was completely waylaid by those other two games for me, and I haven't gone back yet. So, which is not a, which is not really disparaging Tears of the Kingdom. It's just uh, the timing was not right for me to play that thing, and I had a a challenging year in several ways that limited my game time more than uh, more than other recent years. So, uh, unfortunately, I had to put um, Tears of the Kingdom on the uh, the side a little bit. But that that's not to call it anything less than excellent. I uh, mm. like I, I was I totally understand all the praise, totally uh, uh, enjoyed um, most of what I played. But I just 
at, at times I couldn't handle it. So I uh, so it's it's on the back burner for me, but I will get back to it eventually. I'm confident about that. Well, yeah, like I said, it, it basically took me like over 50 hours to get over that initial feeling of overwhelmingness and feeling like the game wasn't exactly what I wanted it to be. But then just discovering um, what I what I really appreciated about it and just customizing my play style in order to get the most of it. That I mean, 50 hours is a long time to invest in a game before you figure all that stuff out. But I, I can say in the end, it was worth it. The last thing I want to say about this, uh, about Tears of the Kingdom, is there have been some incredible, there were some incredible games in terms of the technical achievements that these games have pulled off this year in terms of the graphics, uh, it, like just stunning, uh, beautiful, incredible worlds that are just blow a 40, 90 graphics card out of the water. But I don't think anything is as impressive as Nintendo somehow getting this thing running as well as it does on the Switch. It makes no sense to me how well this game runs on a Switch uh, without it slow down to a ridiculous degree. It makes no sense to me. The Switch should not be able to play this game, and it does, and I think it does, for the most part, flawlessly. There's a little bit of pop-in, uh, but honestly, I mean, just the transition between uh, Hyrule and going underground is seamless, and that is jaw-dropping to me because the Switch, I feel, based on every other game you play on this thing, should not be able to do that. And uh, on that note, shout out to Monolith Soft for apparently knowing the Switch better than anyone else because I know they, they helped a lot with that technical side of how the open world functions. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's quite incredible to me just how I forgot I was playing it on a Switch. I think this would be a remarkable closing chapter for uh, the aging Switch hardware. I think this would be a great game as Nintendo's final word for this uh, console. I do not know if it will be, but I feel like it would be a perfect final word for uh, the Switch. You know, I mean, yes, but and there's rumors of a Super Switch uh, on the horizon, but we don't have anything concrete enough to report on, I think. Um, and and uh, there's plenty of Switch games scheduled for 2024 that a lot of folks are interested in. So, I, I mean, we know that this won't be the final uh, gasp of the Switch. No, 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 but, I know. I mean, I mean, Nintendo's final, like their okay. last their last first party uh, Mario or uh, Zelda game. I don't know if it will be either Slozy, but I feel like it would be a nice a nice exclamation point for them. Well, it's certainly popular and acclaimed enough and good enough on its own to uh, at, le at least be worthy of such a note. Um but you know what? I, I think I want to go next because there is a, a Switch game I played maybe more than any other game this year because uh, I invested something like 65 or 70 hours into Octopath Traveler 2. And um, to roll it back a little bit, this is a Team Asano game. Um, Asano being a, uh, a producer on a couple different Square Enix series. Uh, he, I think his um, first game he, was a, he had a leading executive role on was... Um, Final Fantasy IV Heroes of Light for the DS. Then he was the creator of uh, the Bravely Default series. And uh, uh, she did Triangle Strategy two years ago. Or was that last year? Oh, I, 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 don't, I don't know calendar years anymore. Um, but also the Octopath Traveler games. And uh, the first Octopath Traveler was a, a super interesting concept. It had um, similarities to the framework of a Saga game. In that there was eight characters with individual quests. 
that could interact with each other. And there was a, uh, a pretty robust class system and a lot of fun twists onto turn-based gameplay that had some similarities to Brave and Braving and Defaulting and Bravely Default, but it was mostly its own thing. Um, uh, but a, uh, but really gorgeous music by, uh, I, I think is, is his name, uh, Yasunori Nishiki. I, oh, I need to, I should look. I'm 90% up. sure that's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, yes, Yasunori Mishiki. So, yeah, okay, I, was, I wasn't just accidentally mixing up first names. Um, uh, excellent soundtrack by Yasunori Nishiki and uh, a visual presentation that is like a, uh, a sort of a hyper-detailed 16-bit so that it, it, it evokes 16-bit sprites but has a level, but has those beautiful backgrounds, beautiful animations that far surpassed anything on the Super Nintendo or Genesis. And, and, and a, a, com- a comparison or a phrase that we heard often was Octopath looks like how you remember your favorite 16-bit RPG to look like. Um, but Octopath, but I also thought Octopath Traveler 1 was like a little disappointing because there was no like interact, there was barely any interactivity in the individual quests. Um, like sort of, it was almost sort of like, uh, like six mini RPGs with eight characters that, uh, that weren't aware of each other's stories at times. Um, but even though the, the the dialogue itself and the character designs themselves were really, really good, it, it it also it felt like a little bit disparate, a little bit messy. And I and I liked it, but I didn't adore it. Um, Octopath Traveler 2 feels like they they heard every criticism of the first Octopath and and basically went at it and made a game that is the same basic structure, but with more interactivity, better writing, better characters um, a more, uh, a, a better connected story, um, more tricks you can do with the, with the class system and, and gameplay, more hidden stuff everywhere. Uh, so it's more rewarding to explore, uh, uh, more path actions. So like, uh, so just in town talking to NPCs, you can do everything from rob them blind to charm them, to, uh, to fight them, to learn uh, techniques from them. They, they basically gave you everything. Octopath Traveler 2 has everything the first one does, but with um, a better story, more interconnectedness, and just more of everything that was good about the first one. Like it, it is almost a platonic ideal of a sequel for how yeah. it takes a concept and just brings everything that was good about that concept up up multiple levels. It um I, I I'm not I'm not sure uh what my favorite part of Octopath Traveler 2 is because there's so many parts I like that I'm not that I don't know what to talk about first, <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's, it's some combination of the class system and just how, and just how lovely all these eight main characters are. I, I struggled to pick a favorite. I had so much fun playing this game and I, I have not finished um, my game of the year piece for 2023, but I, I will say that final fantasy 16 and Octopath Traveler two might finish one and two in my list, but I'm not sure what the order is yet. Octopath Traveler two is amazing. Um, I, it's actually one of those games that like uh, you always ask reviewers like what's a game you wish you could have rescored and usually it's like I wish I could have scored a little bit lower I actually think I wish I had scored Octopath Traveler 2 a little bit higher um it, it's um it, it, it's so good like it, it looks so great and everything you said is totally accurate like it, it is ah uh, it, it does an amazing job with giving you sort of an RPG playground, like everything that you wanted when you were 15 years old or 12 or whenever you were playing some of these games, it, it, it feels so good on those fronts in terms of the, 
exploration. You're finding everything around another corner. If your criticism of some of the earlier games we talked about was side quests or, you know, do, you know, fast travel here, I feel like it, it corrects those in ways that I still think are reasonable. I, I think that it takes what I believe is the best combat in turn-based RPGs and it improves it. Uh, the break boost system is phenomenal in this game. The music is so good. Like uh, the the second boss battle theme is so good. I don't even want to talk about it. I, I, I've said this in the in pr- prior podcasts, but I think Nishiki's soundtracks for Octopath, they feel like normal RPG soundtracks. Like, oh yeah, this is a town with water in it. This is a, a forest that's mm-hmm. a little foreboding. Like this is a, a town with a, that, that is set is located in the tropics. Like, they feel like normal RPG tunes, but like the best version of them. Like I, I, uh, I, 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 if I was king of Square Enix, I would have him do the soundtrack to a Dragon oh, Quest Thirteen. I mean, not, not even a, not even a question. <laughs> oh but, uh, but I, 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 I'm, I, what I'm saying is, when I was describing what was good about Octopath <laughs> yeah. before, I was, I was underselling Nishiki's soundtrack. Yeah, it's so he's, good. He's so phenomenal. Uh, it, it's, it, it is. I, I think that like the perfect way of saying it is the way you said it, and I wish I had come up with that phrase. It is the platonic, platonic ideal of a sequel, but for me, it's the platonic ideal of a turn-based RPG, and it is uh, so good. Uh, it, it's so good. Uh, I, I, I could whack poetic about it for ages, or less than poetically, but it's it's so good. And um, I hate to compare it to the first one, but in, Octopath 1 had some appealing characters in it. Like I, I, I like that cast generally, uh, and I have my favorites and my ones I don't like so as much, but more than the first one i think every one of the eight core stories in octopath 2 I agree. could carry their own game and i it, I, I think that the worst storyline in eight which I, to me is like probably oswald is in, in, still, in two you mean yeah into i'm sorry yeah. uh into is probably about as good as the best story in octopath traveler one uh for comparison's sake like it's it, it it's better i think i said this in my review like it's better in every single way than the original and i like the original a lot yeah i mean i'm trying to think of what i th- thought the weakest story in octopath 2 was uh oh, i don't i don't know like i like i really like agnias and i think a lot of people don't yeah, like yeah no that people one a lot, don't like Ag- that one agnias, is a, I, is a banger honestly i love I, the ending i love the music oh the music. i think agnias has the lowest stakes because she just wants to bring joy to the world and be the best dancer in the world, and her and her final battle is a showdown against the against a uh, a celebrity dancer. But the way it's pulled off is it, it is so fun and beautiful, and the music and uh, and 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 circumstances around the final battle actually are dramatic and crazy fun. Um, I, I mean, I'm trying to think what's my favorite story in Octopath One. Pro- maybe Ulbrich. But I, I think that like Ulbrich would be below average or at the bottom of the list in Octopath 2. They're all so excellent. And, and, and I, mean, I mean, the salacious one in Octopath 1 was probably, uh, oh, probably the dancer. What, what's her name? Oh, I forget. But, but uh, like... Uh, Rose? No. Rose is... Primrose. 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 Ah, Primrose. I was like, yeah. that was close. Octopath 2's version of Primrose's story is probably Throne's. But I think that Throne's arc is so much cooler than anything yeah. in octopath one i i just when i was putting game of the year together i'm like i gotta have father on this list as best antagonist because he's such a good antagonist holy moly like there's <laughs> I, I without spoiling too much there's a uh, sort of eight antagonists to match the eight protagonists of octopath two mm-hmm. father's one of them 
Uh, well, no, no, the father's not one of them. He's technically not. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 pers- the person behind father is one of them. Yeah. And uh, but it's uh, yeah, there's a bunch of memorable villains in there. And like there was one one of the uh, NPCs that ends up being a villain. I, I did not trust him from the very beginning. Um, uh, someone someone who invests in an arena, uh, Zach. I I had that guy pegged as bad I, from the beginning. I did not, and I almost I, I was like, uh, he's got to be on the because uh, everybody who's uh, hopefully everybody who's listening to this knows that we have like a reader's choice out there for best antagonist. But yeah, <laughs> I, I was like, I gotta nominate him, but like I can't because it's too much of a spoiler, and he's such a good villain. Well, the crazy <laughs> thing is, is there uh, like the conspiracy behind this game and the villains. I like I pegged. Oh, I bet this guy's a villain. It turns out there was like five surprise visit villains. And I can only guess one of them. Like there's the, one of them. There's no way you guessed. No, I'm I don't, Partitio's storyline. Oh. Yes. OK, I, I didn't. <laughs> correct. I, basically, I, there, there's so many surprises and secrets in this game that go beyond what the surface of Octopath one had that yeah. I was I, I was consistently so impressed and just having a blast. And, and, I, and I, I think my least favorite story might have been the merchants from Octopath one. But Partitio is oh. like made me excited to be a merchant in a video game, like m- maybe even more than than the legend Tornico Taloon. <laughs> <laughs> that 90s sitcom, like, oh, my flavor God. to the music. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> he had, yeah, he had, like, he had like electric guitar and, and saxophone, like you're watching the opening to Perfect Strangers or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, again, the, like everything from the music to the characters to the combat just absolutely hits in Octopath 2. And um, and uh, it, it has a pretty definitive ending with credits rolling and everything. Mm-hmm. With a, That's really cool. But also a post-game boss for the real challenge hounds out there Oof. that, oh boy, <laughs> may, maybe check a guide or something. So uh, like, yeah, uh, definitely uh, don't do what I did and put a whole spreadsheet together because there were no guides out yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, but anyway, you don't have to play the first one. Um, the... Octopath Traveler might be two. better if you don't. Yeah, maybe. I mean, <laughs> like if you play well, if you play the this one first, it'll be hard to go back to the first one. Is the only uh, uh, disadvantage. But Octopath Traveler two is, I, I think it's the best Team Asano game. And I say this as a bit of a fanboy of the Bravely games. I I wrote two of the Bravely reviews on RPG Fan, and I only write. I've only written like six reviews ever on RPG Fan. But uh, this might be that subgroup within Square Enix's best game, and I wholeheartedly re- recommend it to the entire audience. Zach, it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, the review that you wish you could go back to and uh, and change the score, because I'm looking at my Octopath Traveler 1 review, and I'm looking at him like, 84, you coward. Uh, I did not enjoy Octopath Traveler 1. Uh, I certainly didn't enjoy it to an 84. Uh, more than any other game in when did I review this 2019 I think this might have been the biggest disappointment for me and I cannot think of another game that I have played while I was playing it that I desperately wanted to like it more than I did um and that's one of the reasons why I'm genuinely excited by the idea of playing Octopath Traveler 2 because Zach you and I have talked about it and obviously I've read your review it seems to have addressed every major concern that I've had about Octopath Traveler 1, while at the same time even improving on the things that I loved about it, such as, say, the music and many of the stories, many of the individual characters. So I, I don't know. You say that, Zach, you told me that I should play this, and I believe you. Um, I'm not convinced that you'd love it, but I, you would definitely like it better than the first. Well, I like it better than a saga game. 
Well, yeah, that's a low freaking bar, though, dude. Okay, I, you're I, not I, I, I might be repeating a point that I've said on other podcasts, <laughs> but I feel like Octopath Traveler 1 was less than some of its parts. It was, it was like these eight disparate stories yeah. that, that felt disconnected and made the game feel lesser as a result. But it's the opposite for Octopath 2. This game has eight really strong, like, core pillars, but yet the game is more than the sum of its parts in a way that I did not feel about the first game. Yeah, I'm sold on it. This is not a game that I am going to be sleeping on. This is a game that I will play uh, in 2024, but I am a little bit trepidatious about it just because of how in- astoundingly disappointed I was about Octopath Traveler 1. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to play it, and I suspect I will enjoy it. Yeah, the more Excellent. I hear about the game, the more I am just burning with anticipation to play it because I, I haven't played the first one either um but just every time i hear like people talking about this game i, I pick up on something that just like is genuinely surprising and is something I, I would not expect uh the game to have just based on like my my general understanding of it as kind of like this uh nostalgic uh return to the rpgs of the 90s but even just like hearing about things like the, the path actions and how they uh, infuse the game with kind of this more like uh, emergent, uh, almost tabletopy kind of gameplay yeah. is alone is just like it does. I, yeah. I got to see how that looks in, in a, a Japanese RPG because that mm-hmm. that sounds amazing. It, it's so consistent too. Like it's it, it, there's so many ways you can play around with it in the day night cycle in this game. Like it's it's like a playground. Like you just like play around with it constantly, and it's just like super fun. Like it, it, in Octopath One, like I feel like I was cheesing it a lot of the time. I was like, oh, I want this axe. I'm going to go reload this to get this 3% roll right. But here, it's just it's just fun. It, it's great. It's so fun. Great game. All right. Well, we've said a lot about Octopath Traveler 2, and Zach, Jono, and I have each um, talked about one game on our list. Alex, that means it's your turn. Uh, where are we going next for our 2023 year in review episode? You could even say we're ongoing. It's a, so we're going we're going from from retro and nostalgic return to uh as modern as it gets. Um so my pick personal pick for game of the year uh is an expansion and it's something that I if you told me this was going to be my game of the year uh at the beginning of this year when I first played Cyberpunk 2077 uh, I wouldn't have believed you. But uh, sure enough, Phantom Liberty um, is an uh, absolutely incredible uh, experience, unlike almost anything I, I've had with uh, a video game, let alone an RPG. Um, so just for context, because Cyberpunk 2077 is a game that's like literally been drowned in context. Uh, I first played this uh, at the beginning of the year on my Xbox Series X uh with patch 1.5 which was basically the the base game but uh ironed out of like all the glitches that kind of came out with the game's release and um just kind of more polished mechanics and things like that uh but still pretty much what the game was on release just ironed out from the unplayableness of it all at first so i i dodged that aspect of the game uh and enjoyed it for like a a good good amount of what it was um like the the highs of the base game were uh pretty pretty damn impressive Uh, a lot of like kind of uh 
holodeck-like immer- immersive kind of role-playing and cinematic uh, set pieces that you get to experience. Uh, that was what the, the base game did best. Uh, it had some really interesting side characters. Clearly, there was still some of the, the inspiration from Witcher 3 in terms of the writing going on in this game uh, that found its way into a lot of lovable NPCs that you met and got to do missions with. Uh, but Cyberpunk 2077 was also a game with what I, I felt to be like an identity crisis, where it was also at the same time as being this kind of evolution of RPG uh, based off what CD Projekt Red had already done with The Witcher 3. Uh, it was also trying to be this open world, almost like Grand Theft Auto-like experience. And there was like a huge tonal clash that I just felt kind of ruined uh, the base game experience for me. Like a lot of the side quests kind of like engaged in like toilet humor and aspects of the the world building were just kind of like dumb uh, rather than like tuned into kind of uh, cyberpunk fiction, which is a genre I'm very passionate about. Um, so there were these these high highs and, and very low lows uh, of the base game. But ultimately like the ending I got, which is the quote unquote bad ending um, was one of the most interesting endings I've ever had with a video game, and it kind of really helped redeem that entire experience for me, because if I can finish a game and I'm just like sitting there for 10 minutes just thinking about what I just experienced, that's pretty cool, um, and helped me get over a lot of my uh, flaws with the game. So that takes us to Phantom Liberty, um, which I was just hoping would condense the strengths of the base game into a much tighter, more tonally consistent experience. And that is exactly what it accomplished. So Phantom Liberty is kind of like a spy thriller story. Um, You get kind of um, uh, involved with uh, the FIA and uh, the president of the new United States, which is basically outside um, of Night City, uh, still ruling a good part of the country. Um, and the, the FIA is basically the, the, the new FBI. And uh, you get mixed in, uh, you meet the, the president of the NUSA on the first mission of the game, which is absolutely spectacular and really just brings you in full force into the story. Uh, and then you start meeting these uh, agents and ex-agents and kind of getting a sense of what they're like as characters. There's, of course, Solomon Reed, which is the Idris Elba character, um, who's just like very, very well played. Uh, Elba did, did an amazing job with the, the voice acting and motion capture. Uh, and you meet these these other characters too, Songbird and Alex, and you just sort of slowly get to know them through the expansion. They all have kind of like a relationship with each other that is sort of fraught, but still uh, still slightly together. So there's a lot of like tension in the group. Uh, then there's the overall tension of the the spy thriller narrative and kind of like a lot of uh, potential backstabbing, a lot of mi- mistrust and things like that, that really add to the, the whole role-playing experience that, that the expansion is going for too. So in, in all those ways, uh, Phantom Liberty uh, succeeded kind of narratively. Um, and uh, not only that, like the, the game still looks amazing. Uh, again, the glitches have been ironed out. Uh, just like being kind of like in these first person cutscenes where you're making dialogue choices while seeing these animations of characters play out. Like it is still a, a pretty singular uh, experience um, that, that I just thought was, was pretty incredible. Uh, and overall, just the fact that this just condensed the, the game into like this one little hub of Night City called Dogtown 
which is basically uh, a slightly like kind of separatist area of the city ruled by this kind of um, fascist leader, uh, Kurt Hansen. Um, and the, the whole design of this open space is, is so much more interesting, feels so much more alive than anything in the base game did. Are there, um, are there any skateboarders in Dogtown? <laughs> there, are, there are no skateboarders. But okay, so it's so not the Dogtown I'm familiar with then. Uh, no, no. There, there's there's a part of Santa Monica that was called Dogtown in the 70s and 80s that was like surfers and skateboarders. Yeah, yeah there, there's there's a lot of punks, but they're 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 cyberpunks. They're not skatepunks, uh, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, Do- Dogtown was a great little area to just kind of walk around in, and I wasn't feeling like I was just doing using my vehicle to get from uh, mission to mission like I was in the base game. It actually felt alive. I felt uh, motivated to just explore it for what it was. Um, and then on top of that, just like the the core mission design was just absolutely phenomenal and gripping and like filled filled with like these kind of like multi step uh, narrative set pieces. So so for example, like one of the missions, like it's like an espionage uh, mission where you start by infiltrating this like uh, hotel through like a sewer. You end up hijacking the sniper position and coordinating with like the NPC you're working with to try to get them through as you're kind of like giving them uh, tells to like go ahead um, as you're like kind of sniping dudes and coordinating uh, different attacks on on enemies. And then you end up uh, getting into this party after doing like a costume change and you just have like this more social role-playing experience where you have to like gamble and you meet new characters. And it's just like the fact that those three uh, different flavors are all captured in like one hour of gameplay is just like chef's kiss. Like that, that is what I want. And just overall, like the fact that this whole thing is, was over in like 20 hours, like, yes, please don't give me filler. Just give me like some amazingly designed, creative (laughs) main missions along with like a couple of pretty solid and interesting side quests that help flesh out the area. And you've got, which could be just like a standalone game. We, we don't need these kind of 50 plus hour games when you can create such a condensed, uh, rewarding experience that just lasts 20 hours. Like if Cyberpunk 2 was more like Phantom Liberty than the base game in its structure and scope, like, yes, why not? Um, so yeah, all, all those things just like made me really appreciate what this game was. And yeah, uh, yeah I loved it. It's fascinating because, like, I uh, I saw a demo of uh, Cyberpunk 2077 at E3 2019, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this looks like the most amazing thing I have ever seen. Um, and, um, you know, I, I've been excited about it ever since. And I, I bought it the day it came out, and I have not played a single solitary moment of it. <laughs> um, but I, I think that I, I like that you're focusing on, like, what worked about the witcher 3 right like the witcher 3 like was amazing but it wasn't because like it was some amazing open world design um it was fine on yeah, that exactly front. it was a very what, empty world realistically right exactly it, what was amazing about it was the side quest design um and it was the the ways in which you could role play in really interesting ways and that is what cd project red understood understands how to do well and it sounds to me like cd project red instead leaned into what didn't work uh, which was like the open world design. And then here, finally, it sounds like they leaned into what does work, which is the writing and the side quest design and the ways in which you can make choices that matter, but 
not in a way that feels artificial. Um, mm-hmm. And that was what about Witcher 3 I thought was remarkable. And it's what sounds like works really well here. So I think it's awesome. Yeah, the fact that um, like you could be in like just having conversations with the different kind of main players in the story. And uh, even if you're making like very like minor uh, inconsequential dialogue choices, but they still feel very meaningful just knowing the context of these NPCs relationship to each other and like your specific moment in that story uh, scene um, that that is just like incredible. I felt like I was just constantly engaged by the writing and, and the, the ways the, the scenes were animated with all the uh, amazing detail they put into uh, the character work. Just, just really, really good stuff. Uh, a few weeks ago on random, we had a, really interesting conversation about redemption arcs in video games, uh, games that are released and they are uh, critically panned or disappointing in some way and how they, the developer works on them and redeems them. I'm not going to reiterate that conversation here. It's on the Super Mario RPG episode if anyone's curious. Um, but I will say that there's a reason why Cyberpunk, too much, to many people going, well, there's a reason why it won best ongoing game is because the game is actually been undergoing development since it was released to make it into the game that they promised it would be the fact that they've apparently reached that point not just with phantom liberty but also with the uh, version 2.0 is i think kind of a remarkable achievement and i think has saved cd project red was badly hurt by uh the initial release of cyberpunk 2077 and i am actually genuinely impressed with the time energy resources Everything they put into this game to get it to the point where they they delivered the game that they you know promised years and years and years ago, uh, and I feel that there are other companies uh, such as Bethesda with Starfield that could and should pay attention to what they did and uh, emulate that. Um, not that necessarily Starfield is as bad a game as Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven was on its release, but like game companies, especially massive ones, massive ones like this, there's a certain contract they have with their audience with us and when they don't just fail to live up to it not every game can be perfect but when they dramatically under deliver and really deliver something that hurts and makes us go what the hell it makes us feel defrauded in a way uh when they make it right that is an exceptional win for uh public relations for them and just for i think the industry as a whole Well, yeah, absolutely. And to your and, and Zach's point, um, just the fact that uh, CD Projekt Red, were, with this expansion particularly, just knew what their strengths were and said, Let, let's customize this experience completely around what we know we do best and what fans want us to do, rather than try to uh, cater to all these different AAA design expectations. Like That's another huge win for, for AAA game development as a whole. Yeah. Now, if it wins best ongoing next year, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah. The- <laughs> <laughs> now, Jono, you talked about the redemption arc of this game, and I, I think that games with redemption arcs, it's an interesting story. Like, I'm, a lot has been said about, say, No Man's Sky and Final Fantasy XIV, uh, two games that I that I have enjoyed post their redemption. But um, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to be the negative voice on this. I think that uh, uh, CD Projekt Red has poisoned the well. I'm not sure I'm ever going to play a CD Projekt Red game for the rest of my life. And that's because the launch for Cyberpunk was so bad, and the, uh, the, the behavior of the, uh, of the people at the top of the company was 
so deplorable um, and how they treated their own staff and treated fans um, was so bad. I, I, I'm not sure I ever want to play any of their games. And, and, and this went from, and I, the thing is, I did try to play The Witcher 1 a long time ago and was not impressed, I, I, as, mostly from a functionality UI kind of perspective. Um, and I've heard that game's getting remade, and I'm sure that and it definitely could use a remake. But I, and and I was I've almost played Witcher three like four times over the last <laughs> three or four years, but never got around to it. But I I, uh, I, I really think that um, even if Phantom Liberty's good, the narrative around Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven is so negative. I'm not sure I want to play any Cyberpunk game they ever. Mm-hmm. And I and I know that's my own stubbornness and um. Uh, talking and it's and it's probably not fair to the you know to Phantom Liberty in the back, but it will take a huge amount of convincing for me to ever try Cyberpunk, and, and maybe even some convincing for me to, to convince me to go back and try The Witcher Three, which I'm which I'm considerably closer to trying than Cyberpunk. But um, as, as much as this is a good redemption story, I think that there is still some negativity around that initial launch because I can't I can't be the only person that well, there will there will be forever. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no doubt that that launch was absolutely atrocious. It's, it's a cautionary tale at this point that will go down in video game history. But at least I, I am happy that they're at least like really, really trying. I mean, they they need to. They need to save their entire uh, company at this point uh, because of how bad it was. But um, they are trying, and um, yeah, I mean, at least they're not like in in EA or, or Ubisoft at the same time. Yeah, because EA or Ubisoft would never have donated, donated, would never have invested the resources that were required to make this into the game it is now. Yeah, like, exactly. That just never would have happened. They would have patched it, maybe, uh, and that would be it. And they would have moved on to the next thing. But to be fa- again, to be fair, though, Ubisoft does have the ability to do that because they are such a massive studio with so many different parts. CD Projekt Red had everything riding on Cyberpunk 2077. A failure for Cyberpunk 2077 would have been and was almost uh, calamitous for the company. So they had to do this. Uh, and the fact that they pulled it off is something to... You're right, so you're right. It's not something to celebrate. I think it's something to be almost relieved over. Yeah, and I like that, I like that they to took... It. I like that they took responsibility for releasing a shitty product and they said, we're going to fix it. And then they did. Um, It's bare minimum that you can expect, but I like that they actually delivered that. I think that a lot of, I think a lot of other companies would never have done that in a million years. That might be true. Does not make me any closer to playing it. I am completely understand. I, I, my my feeling on them is, is like your feeling on, uh, I don't know, on like, like, like what if, uh, what if um, Bethesda made uh, remade Earthbound? That, that 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 that's like like you approaching that game is how I might approach Cyberpunk. I'm just uh, thinking I... about Earthbound characters with uh, weird faces and then bugging, bulging eyes. And... <laughs> it, it actually kind of it actually kind of fits the aesthetic of Earthbound, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh oh god earthbound earthbound or fallout 76 that is a that is a choice i'm glad i don't oh, need to goodness. make oh well, gosh i i have so many things to say we'll say none of them let's keep going let's just let's, let's right. move away from yeah that. let's move away from all this um i mean uh, like like cyberpunk 2077 is about a game set in the future that also completed a bit of a redemption arc 
But I, th- I think maybe it's time to move on to a different sort of future redeem. What say you, Zach? I, I, I'm <laughs> sorry, Zach. That, I, was, that, that, was, that was such a good transition. That, that I, was, I, I want everybody who's listening to stop and marvel. <laughs> oh, that was, that was beautiful. <laughs> um, which is funny <laughs> because, uh, you know, like it, it takes place in the past, sort of. I don't know. Um, so it, what's interesting is like, I feel like this year I have, for whatever reason, um, just like sort of uh, played a lot of like DLC for like major JRPG releases. I've played like 16s. I've played Tales of Arises. Okay. Don't. Uh, zero out of 10 would not recommend even though I get it with 65. Um, hmm. But um, Xenoblade and Monolith, we've talked about how Monolith understands how to use the Switch already. They know how to make DLC uh, because uh, Future Redeems uh, DLC for Xenoblade Chronicles 3 is amazing. I don't think it's quite as good as Torn of the Golden Country, which I think is just an amazing DLC. But like Torn of the Torn of the Golden Country's uh, like banging piano battle theme. Oh, it is jazz. Holy moly. It is. I played zero seconds of Torn of the Golden Country, and I don't give a damn. That game's already better than Cyberpunk 2077. (laughs) That game is a banger, but also so is Future Redeemed, even though it has its issues. But like I. Sorry. Um, I I, I, I love. I love Future Redeemed. So like if you've played Xenoblade Chronicles 3. You know that it's. It's an amazing JRPG. Uh, it, it hits all the markers. It has some high highs, um, like end of chapter five, beginning of chapter six, like best JRPG moments ever. Um, and Future Redeem never quite hits those the, those same markers, but it it manages to be like sort of a culmination of the series. It has uh, characters in your party from Xenoblade One. It has characters in your parties from Xenoblade Two. And I'll just say Xenoblade 2 because everybody knows Rex is in it. And Rex is the best character in this game by far. And anybody who doesn't like Rex in the original Xenoblade 2 needs to like realize that he's 15 and he's like a (laughs) banger. He's like a banger in this game and he's awesome. And also, if you control him, you will obliterate the entire game. Um, But like it it does very similar things to Torn of the Golden Country in that it streamlines and simplifies the like base game combat. Um, in ways that I think are super fun um, and I think that work for a DLC, even though the DLC is like 30 hours long again. Um, and it, it shames every other company in terms of DLC, except for maybe I, I hate to say this, but it's the truth. CD Projekt Red, um, it shames every other company in terms of DLC because it provides a whole new story. It provides a whole new cast of characters. It literally provides a culmination of not even just the three Xenoblade games, like it pulls in elements from the other Xeno games as well um, in very explicit ways. Um, And it also provides a a ton of new characters that are super fun to play around with. Like there are some that are sort of underdeveloped and I wish it was a little bit longer. Actually, it could have been its own game and I would have played the hell out of it. Um, But it is, it's so good and it's so fun to play with. And they add some things in like, um, like an almost chained echoes like uh, ability to like every time you complete like a little objective, it gets you some points. And the RPG lover in me loves that. Um, it, it it is one of the best DLCs I've ever played for one of the best games I've ever played. And uh, I absolutely love Future Redeemed, and I want more Xenoblade 
tomorrow, which I think might actually happen because Monolith Soft is on like a different development cycle than everybody else. <laughs> they just release things so much faster than everyone else. And um, they're, they're such a good studio. And I, I love the DLC. Now, I'm someone who loves Xenoblade Chronicles 1, um, has tried to a couple times, but fell off it a couple times. And I am really, really interested in playing Xenoblade 3. I think that's going to be on my uh, 2024 list of targets. Um, you said this is a culmination. Uh, uh, sh- should you really have played Xenoblade Chronicles 1, 2, and possibly Cross before playing this one? Uh, Cross is totally unnecessary. I would say to play Xenoblade Chronicles 3, um, you really don't need to have played the first two. Like, there are elements of it that make it better. Right. But, like, Future Redeemed, I'll be honest, like, it is an inferior experience if you haven't played the first two. Um, it is definitely like, um, let's put like a cherry on top of this whole series. Um, and if you've played them all, like, they all interconnect in ways that I won't spoil. Um, but like you can still enjoy the narratives of one, two and three, I think, without and even like uh, Torna as well, without having played like the others in the series. But here, I think like you need to have played all three to fully enjoy what it is. Um, so I think you can play Xenoblade Chronicles three without having played the first two or the second one in your case. But like to play this like. Rex is uh, the growth of Rex is the most satisfying part of Xenoblade uh, Chronicles three, the future redeemed. And without having played two, I don't think you get that. Interesting. Now. Oh, okay. Uh, I suspect that you might be the only person here that's played future redeemed Zach. And for that, I apologize. But uh, I will say that uh, Xenoblade Chronicles three is probably going to be my holiday break game. So I'm finally going to ra- get around to at least the base <laughs> game. I have, have you played Xenoblade Chronicles one and two, Alex? I played the first one, yeah, and yeah. Uh, enjoyed it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what, what's different with three. I, I didn't love every aspect of one. I thought it was it dragged on a little bit, but uh, the the peaks of it were absolutely oh. phenomenal. The peaks of three are in high, so yeah, awesome. I have all of the Xenoblade games uh, set up for alerts in NT deals to give mm. me a heads up when they are on sale. That is my experience with the Xenoblades, uh, Xenoblade Chronicles games. So I have nothing to add to this, except for the fact that, yeah, they're on my backlog. I just need to buy them first. Yeah, that's weird. I'm, I was checking my uh, deal tracker software, and, and I can't find Future Redeemed. Maybe, it's, maybe it has a slightly confusing listing. But uh, yeah, I do own Xenoblade 3, and I'm really excited to eventually get to it. I don't, I don't know exactly when that'll happen, but it's on the short list. Uh, in, in part because it was so positively received by RPG fan. W- was it our game of the year last year? It was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and be- and I think it's because the, uh, well, I mean, uh, 2022 was a pretty good video game year. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that that was Elden Ring's year for one. Yeah. But, uh, but the voices that love Xenoblade Chronicles 3 really love Xenoblade Chronicles 3, and it's, uh, it, it's certainly earned. And if even this, after playing Elden Ring, I would still pick Xenoblade Three for the record. So cool. Yeah. Um, and and if this uh if this DLC is standalone and brings together the casts of one, two, and three, then it sounds like in, in, in incredibly rewarding for fans. Yeah, it is absolutely like you. You'd need to have played all. You know, I guess Torna is the only thing that isn't totally necessary, but Torna is so good. Like, don't skip it. <laughs> <laughs> um, like you really need to have played one, two, and three, uh, to get the full experience of 
of Future Redeemed, which is the only real negative I can think of, except for like that. And it's too short. And there are some characters who I wish had more time in the spotlight. Yeah, I mean, if you're if your biggest complaint that you you wish there was a little bit more then that's that's about as uh, as generous a complaint you can offer, right? That is a true story. Excellent game. Like this, so this, fun. This was 30 hours. I, it could have been 60. Yep. It's actually true in this case. Yeah. But I mean, we might as well still remain in the future uh, after discussing Cyberpunk and Xenoblade. Uh, Jono, what do you think about a sort of a more idealist future where a man boldly goes where no man has gone before? Oh, a utopian future as it was. Um, okay, well, first I want to preface this by saying Star Trek Resurgence is by no means uh, a game of the year for me. Um, what I would actually like to talk about uh, is uh, Like a Dragon Machine. However, uh, Slosi, you and I uh, actually talked about it for two plus hours on a two-parter episode of Retro Encounter earlier in the year. We might talk about it briefly in a few minutes anyway. So I thought I would put a spotlight on an experience that I had in 2023 that was by no means game of the year material, but I really, really enjoyed. Uh, and that was Star Trek Resurgence. So there are uh, a number of Star Trek games. Solosi has incredibly generously given me Retro Encounter, uh, two full episodes where I got to geek out about two classic Star Trek adventure games. Yeah. Uh, and since that point, we really haven't had a lot of Star Trek adventure games. They've been in a variety of different genres. But some folks who used to work for Telltale, uh, decided they, they got together and they they got the the license and they did they decided to do a brand new star trek game brand new ship brand new crew brand new story that picked up on some of the threads from early seasons of star trek the next generation and uh, that was star trek resurgence it is it's a telltale style adventure game that's what i gotta say about it 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 has the same style the same look about it this game is not a looker i swear to god the, graphically graphically speaking you look at it and you're like oh this this could be on playstation 3 um even though it was released this year uh some of the gameplay elements are more than a little clunky there's some really weird moments in it where it's like a character will like here don't forget your equipment and we'll hold out a phaser to you and you have to like mouse over to the phaser and click on the phaser and it gives it to you and it's just like that doesn't even need to be a cutscene. that that that's just a, like a two second animation um, they're obviously doing that to pad the length. However, all of this said, I loved it. It made me feel like a Starfleet officer. It took a very interesting uh, two-pronged approach to the storyline where you are the brand, a newly minted first officer aboard the USS Resolute. And uh, th this, this is a ship that had, it's just coming off a disastrous mission where it lost its previous first officer and many, many crew uh, everyone's reeling, everyone on the ship has PTSD, and your job as a first officer is to, you know, take charge and, and and get them started on their new mission. And then you also, your second playable character is a lower decks style enlisted crewman who is a bit of a an engineering prodigy. And uh, because of this, you get both sides of the Star Trek experience. You get, you're on the bridge, you're in the, you're in the room, you're doing, dip, dip, you know, diplomatic things. And then at the same time, you have the other character who is in the engine room and has a tricorder and is figuring out engineering puzzles and is working on the health transporters and things like that. And it's a fascinating way to give you the, the entirety of the Star Trek experience. The storyline, aside from some, some little obvious things, really, really good, really well acted characters. Um, and the thing about this game is it genuinely makes you feel like you're a Starfleet officer. It feels like a Star Trek story. I 
have a mixed opinion about many of the Star Trek television shows that have come out over the last few years. Strange New Worlds is genius. Lower Decks is hilarious. I dislike Discovery. Uh, Star Trek Prodigy is a great cartoon show for kids. This is in my upper range as a, 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 a fantastic Star Trek product that's came out in the last few years. Clearly, they were working under a time limit uh, with some uh, restrictions on them in terms of money uh, because the game does not look particularly good. But it feels like Star Trek. It feels more like Star Trek than a lot of Star Trek things have in the last few years. And I think it delivers a really fascinating story that if you are a Trek fan, uh, it's well worth a play. Um, like I said, this is not a game of the year, folks. Not even close. This is a this is a telltale style game that could have easily come out on the PlayStation 3. But if it did come out on the PlayStation 3 in the telltale era, I would have played the hell out of it and I would have enjoyed it just as much as I did now. So yeah, your mileage may vary. If you're not a Star Trek fan, I don't overly recommend it because it's it, the aesthetic, the, the situations, the, the backstory, everything is Star Trek. But if you do like Star Trek and you are a big fan of the next generation, I think that you should give this game a shot. I think it's flown under the radar for a lot of folks. It was not incredibly highly reviewed. Uh, Audra reviewed it for us. She very much enjoyed it. Uh, I think we have an interview on the site with the uh, writers too, which was really, really cool. So yeah, if you like Star Trek, I think this is a game you should download this year, and I think you'll really enjoy it. It's not a ton of, it's not going to take you at 30, 40 hours to play it. So I think, I think I'm at about 10 hours of playtime by the end of it, but very enjoyable time. I, I had, a, I had, I'm going to walk away with fond memories of this game. I don't think, am I the only Star Trek fan here? Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I've only, I, I've, I've seen fewer than 10 episodes of any of the shows. Yes, I, I know. We've, we've same, talked about yeah, this I've, with Ray I've, <laughs> I've seen the full run of the OG. Um, I like Star Trek, but it's just not like a thing that I uh, super invest in. I'm more of a Doctor Who guy, I guess. So, yeah. I am too. Well, I'm not more of a Doctor Who guy. I'm, an equal, <laughs> I'm equally a Doctor Who guy. Well, I mean, my Star Trek and my Star Wars and my Doctor Who is Mass Effect, but we've already talked about that uh, <laughs> th that series plenty of times on uh, our, on Retro Encounter. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's true that I'm, I'm not a Star Trek guy. I, I enjoy most of the Star Trek things that I've seen. Um, and I do like telltale style adventure games, but I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm more likely to jump into this one because I have my of my lack of Star Trek background, uh, as opposed to something like The Expanse or Wolf Among Us 2, which allegedly is coming out in 2024. Yeah, hang off for Wolf Among Us too. That's I think that's a little bit more your speed. Yeah, th that one is definitely my speed. That, the that Expanse one, that one's, is also excellent. Yeah, I, I, I've heard good things about the Expanse. I'm super interested in Wolf Among Us too. I have a couple unplayed Telltale games in my backlog, including a uh, uh, season two of Walking Dead, and I, I and I quite enjoyed season one of Walking Dead. For, um, um, Telltale's Walking Dead, that is. Hmm. Uh, so there, there's. That this is good Star Trek content and matches classic uh, Telltale games uh, is is a, is very positive to me. But because of my lack of Star Trek experience, I'm not sure this one is as high on my list to try as uh, Xenoblade 3. I do not disagree with you. If, if someone is not a Star Trek fan, I do not recommend this game to them. If someone is a Star Trek fan, I think they should play it. It's, it's not that long, and you're going to get a really good Star Trek story out of it. Oh, okay, well, if we're moving on... Um, it's it's almost it, it's uh, this one's almost too easy. I mean, if this if if the Starship Enterprises is a ship navigating a star ocean, as it were, maybe we can talk about a, uh, a more literal sea of stars. No, no, I'm not talking about star ocean uh, 
uh, second story R. I still haven't played that, but I did play the acclaimed indie RPG Sea of Stars, which is, I, I would say, a um, 16 or 32 bit styled uh, sprite work RPG that has been in development for several years. Uh, and it's made by the same team that made The Messenger, which was a 2D action slash kind of a 2D Metroidvania game. It came out some years ago. Uh, but it's a, a distant prequel to The Messenger, and I've only noticed one connection between the games, where you basically, uh, sorry if this is a spoiler, you, you, fr- you encounter a monster, it escapes through a portal, and it's implied that that monster is a key villain in The Messenger, is the, is, is the connection that I, that I noticed. There are a couple of zones that are almost exactly reproduced, which oh, is actually really? interesting, yeah. Okay, uh, like okay. the snow, the snow mountain area is almost exactly the same. Um, I, I I played the messenger after I played Sea of Stars, even though I thought Sea of Stars was pretty yeah. good. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, there there are some areas that are similar. That's cool, and and also I think um the archivist teleports you to that snowy mountain. I believe so. It, so so, yeah. so it is it is like a, it's sort of separated from the world map of Sea of Stars. Uh, that's super interesting, but um rolling back to sort of what sea of star is is it's a uh it's an rpg that i think clearly draws inspirations maybe the most tightly from chrono trigger and lunar because it has uh it, it has enemies visible in the field um as you encounter them like chrono trigger it has a uh, uh attacks with um dual techs and area of effects that that are resembling of chrono trigger the uh the sort of the setup of sort of um the, the very diverse uh, cast and the sort of dynamic between the male and female main character remind me of a Lunar or a Chrono Trigger, even though it's a little bit less romantic than Lunar. Um, w- which, but, but the thing about Sea of Stars is it gets so much acclaim and so much hype. Um, a lot of people were really, really looking forward to this game, and RPG Fans Reviewer gave it a, a really high score. Um, I, I feel like my expectations were slightly too high for this, because I played it and I'm, I have not finished it yet. I'm at the final dungeon, unless something besides the Fleshmancer's Lair is the final dungeon, <laughs> which, I, which I sort of doubt. Uh, I, I feel like this, this game was a... This game is pretty good, but maybe not excellent. Like, like if, when, uh, when I'm thinking of um, beautifully styled games that uh, are nostalgic for 16, uh, for 16 bits, I think Octopath Traveler 2 is miles better than Sea of Stars. But uh, but but I, I don't want to be too uh, insulting because Sea of Stars is very very good. It has a really intriguing setup. There's these two characters um, who are uh, sort of s- sort of destined to um, to save the world. Uh, they're they're called Eclipse Warriors, I think. Um, that uh, that use the powers of the sun and moon to um, defeat monsters called Dwellers that threaten the residents of the world you're on. So the uh, as, as Eclipse Warriors, you are you go on sort of a journey of self discovery. They get stronger, learn um, eclipse, learn eclipse techniques, and eventually take down a dweller. Uh, but then things go a little haywire, and the uh, stakes of the game rise considerably. Where, let's just say, things don't quite go according to plan, and they reshape the second part of the game. There's one character that's uh, not just a ninja, not just a pirate, but both of those things plus a third thing that's a spoiler <laughs> <laughs> and uh and there's a one ca- and at one point they do a, a a narrative device that i enjoy and they the game's narrator becomes a real character that you interact with i'm sort of like taking the um uh, sort of breaking the fourth wall 
or at least walking alongside the fourth wall a little bit. Um, it, it does a lot of very um, uh, cool things for an RPG. Uh, and, and I should say the, uh, the artwork, the sprite work, and the backgrounds are gorgeous. The stage design is really, really good. It's fun how all of the little tight ropes and paths and hidden switches sort of interact within a space so that, so that the dungeon design is consistently interesting. Um, in this game, like it, it's it's mostly very fun to play. I just think that the writing is not nearly at the level of the games it's clearly emulating, and uh, the the skills are just a little boring. You have uh, three or four characters for most of the game, but all of them have only three skills. Maybe you learn a fourth one uh, uh, later in the game, and there's a couple dual texts. But I, w- I was using basically the same three and a half skills on every character for eighty percent of the game's runtime. And compared to a game where you're uh, consistently learning new abilities or the rules are changing or uh, or you unlock new classes and, and, and new tricks, I, I, th- that's a, a part of the RPG experience I really value. And Sea of Stars didn't have that very much. So like uh, Sea of Stars, I'm bringing it up because I think it's good and I think it's very high profile and matches RPG fans audience perfectly. Like this is a game that a lot of RPG fan folks um, both on staff and our audience were justifiably really excited about and uh and i'm happy to talk about it and i don't think it's bad i just think it's like you know that this is fine and sometimes you, you know <laughs> I'm, I'm i i i'm definitely more excited to talk about octopath and sea of stars but uh you know it, this this game's pretty good i think as the kids would say it's kind of mid um <laughs> in, in terms Honestly. of in terms of writing and yeah and and battle mechanics it's unfortunately mid god the i agree writing especially yeah the writing i think is actually kind of bad actually <laughs> mid is is too high uh, uh, of a of a level for me to give that i i think that the story is like it has some twists and turns but like the twists and turns feel forced um, and like the meta element of it, which I know it comes from the messenger and is like totally a thing the developers like eventually removes any sort of emotional investment that I had in the narrative itself. So like the narrative itself, I think, is legitimately kind of bad. Um, but like, it's not horrible. It's just like it's not it's not anything worth talking about. And it's not interesting to me. Um, and actually, the narrative in the messenger uh, is better because like it leans so mo- so much more heavily into the meta that I think it's more interesting on that front. Um, I think the thing that makes Steve Stars interesting is the level design. Like it, it almost feels like Metroidvania in the way that you you navigate the levels. Um, I think it's really cool that that you navigate the levels with like hook, sh- hook shots and things like that. But like it it wears thin at a certain point and the way you get the true ending is so annoying that like, I think that soured me on it. <laughs> um, where yeah, I, like, I, oh. I noticed it. I think you have to collect 60 hidden items. Yeah. And then, and then complete three or four other non-trivial side quests. Yeah. yeah like it, it, it was just frustration for frustration's sake. And it wasn't interesting to me in the combat. I totally agree with everything you said. Like it's interesting on its face. Um, like, but if they added like 15 more skills to it, it would have been closer to what I was hoping for. Um, whereas here it's like, Hey, there's like, uh, there's your delay attack and then there's your big damage attack, the end. Um, and 
switch your characters in and out for weaknesses, but like not in a challenging way, not in a super interesting way. And and sometimes in an annoying way, because yeah, the, exactly. the, the enemy would be like, you need two poison hits and two arcane hits to interrupt this attack. But it's just your party makeup can't cannot possibly do that. But you just don't have that. But you could have that. So screw you anyway. Um, yeah, like compared to something like Octopath, like it it it, it falls so short of Octopath where it's trying to do something sort of similar about hitting weaknesses and breaking enemies and stuff like that. But it, I, I hate to compare it to other things, um, but like it, it, it's just not that. And it's, I, I think a relatively easy game as a result. And even when you screw up, it's not challenging. And I thought it was pretty good, but you reminded me of a lot of the things about the story as you were talking, because it's that unmemorable. Yeah, you, you mentioned them not having much invo- emotional investment in the twists. And a, a couple twists, um, I, I don't want to talk about any of them specifically, but I remember them and like, I felt like I should have thought this was cool or moving, but instead I was just like, what? <laughs> like, like, like some of them, some of the twists are just puzzling and, and uh, one of them specifically, I think is emotionally manipulative and, 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 and not pulled off as well as similar ones. You probably know what I'm t- referring to, Zach. And and also one I do yeah yeah one minor gripe I have with the game is that uh, I just had the last character um, join me fairly recently. Um, they are my favorite character right now, and because I know I'm at the final dungeon, I'm like really I'm I'm getting I, uh, like you introduce this cool new guy, and I only get him for the last twenty five percent of the game, if that. I'm it, like the, the the design decisions in Sea of Stars are sometimes really good with like the stage design and how certain. Uh, side quests are set up like like wheels and fishing are actually pretty good in this game. Wheels is a is a sort of a card game they have, not sort of not exactly like 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 they do some RPG periphery really well and visually I think it's quite stunning and uh, musically it's not bad. There's a different Yasunori on this one. Yasunori Mitsuda contributed uh, I think one or two tracks, but uh, I, I don't know. I think I think it it falls short a little bit because the writing is just not great. And I, I wish it was better, but I, uh, and, and, uh, and it's a little unfair comparing it to Octopath because Octopath definitely had a much larger team and budget, but it, I, I feel like that they're sort of going for the same nostalgia centers of my brain, but, uh, but Octopath, I just enjoyed so much more. Well, I... one fair comparison we can make is Chained Echoes, another indie RPG that came out basically within the last year. Um, and I mean, just compare, I, I haven't played like as much of Sea of Stars as you two. I think I'm just under like 10 ish hours, uh, with it. Uh, and I'm pretty good. It's basically, uh, I, I think both of you mentioned that a couple times. And I think that's a, that would be my tagline for, for Sea of Stars. It's a, a pretty good old school RPG. Um, but I must say two of the things that have kind of discouraged me just from hearing you two talk about it is just, I, I know like plot twists is something that, has been raised as like a positive for this game. So if it doesn't actually capitalize on that in any interesting narrative way, that's going to be hugely disappointing. And also, are you serious that you don't get more character abilities than just like the three you your character basically starts off with? Because if that's the case, oh my god, that is bad. Those three are the ones you use for the yeah. huge majority. They'll get you get a fourth ultimate ability, and then you get a couple uh, t- tag team tag abilities. But I, I think that um, you will be using those three starting abilities plus maybe your first tag ability uh, more than two thirds of the time. Yeah, I mean, like even on the super bosses, like it's not 
Like it doesn't require any brain power. This is not Goldera. <laughs> so oh, yeah. yeah. Um, if I may, I do not, Zach, I I I firmly apologize here if I am overstepping my bounds. I really do. But I'm hearing you talk about the game and you keep saying the words, it's pretty good. But then I hear all of the other words you're saying, and you're holding on to that pretty good like a life raft and you're drowning. Uh do you really think this is pretty good? That's fair. Because it um, sounds like you really dislike this game. You know, I think it's like a, a character flaw of mine. <laughs> um, I don't want to put you on the spot. No, I swear to God. I, I think it's fair. I, I, I actually think that that's more about me than it is anything else. Like, I enjoyed the look. I enjoyed the music. Um, I enjoyed navigating the levels. Like, I mostly, like, had, a, like, a fine time playing the game. I what? guess I, I think that most of my reaction to it is against, like, the high reviews of it you know what i mean like how yeah. disappointed i was by it um more than like i thought it was a bad game i i i, I that's, a, that's a fair criticism of me <laughs> it's not meant to be a criticism of you at all i'm just i'm i'm i was just listening i was like wow zach seems like he hates this game no i i, I actually kind of liked it so i'm glad okay. you said that actually yeah I, but, I just thought it was okay but I, I think that um, I, I, maybe I'm not exactly the same mind as Zach, but I think I probably would have liked this game more if I didn't have the expectations set against it of this uh, of this um, pretty high level of acclaim. It, it even won a game at uh, the Game Awards a few weeks ago. Yeah, one best indie. Yeah, so the uh, yeah, I, I just and it's Canadian, so yay, yay. <laughs> All right, well, I mean, I, I hope we didn't sound too disparaging about Sea of Stars, which is a game I know a lot of people really love. I just sort of wished I loved it I really more did than genuinely I like it, I promise. No, no, I, I <laughs> you know, I, I like it too, and I'm going to finish it, like, maybe in the next 48 hours, um, depending on how many side quests it decides to do. But it's, uh, I, I just, I just, I, I, I think it's worth mentioning because it was a high-profile release among our community, um, even though I didn't love it as much as, say, Caitlin did, who wrote the RPG Fan Review. But... I mean, talking about games that have received a little bit of critical acclaim this year, we might have the granddaddy of them all uh, for your second game, Alex. So uh, do we want to call this a sequel to a 1999-2000 Bioware game or a sequel to Larian's more recent games? I'm, I'm not sure how to approach this. I'd honestly say both, and I'd throw a third game in there too. Um which is Dragon Age Origins, which uh, we're just ah. fresh off of playing, you and I, Celosi. Oh, I've um, heard of that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a good <laughs> one. <laughs> um, so yeah, basically, um, I mean, like, l l yeah, let's start with the, the comparisons, because that's a, a good way to ease into this conversation. And, and just first, for context, like, I've not finished Baldur's Gate 3. I, I started it, like, a week ago, and I'm, like, 15-ish hours in. Uh, lo lo absolutely love the 15 hours I've spent with it, but uh, this is not going to be a super comprehensive uh, elaboration of this game. Uh, so, so the point of comparisons is a good place to start. Uh, so this, like, Baldur's Gate 3 is obviously, um, in terms of lore and uh, its world, just the fictional world it takes place in, a continuation of Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, um, which were very much like basically digital adaptations of D&D. Um, fortunately, now we're no longer using the absolutely uh, whack second edition of D&D, and we're into, I think, the fifth now, um, which is much yeah, better. I and has... I think the sixth, now called 1D&D, &D, is coming out at okay. some point next year. Okay. 
Yeah, so, uh, yeah, uh, the D&D system has come a long way uh, since Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, and uh, that translates pretty nice into uh, the combat of Baldur's Gate 3 and all just the different even options uh, outside of and adjacent to combat you have for interacting with the world. That is all very, very cool stuff. Um, but then, obviously, this is a game not by Bioware, but by Larian, uh, who uh, were famously coming off of the success of Divinity Original Sin 2, which is a game I did play and did not finish. Um, and based on the um, like really outstanding reputation of that game, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, uh, I was a little disappointed by it, and I did fall off. Um, I thought... Uh, Divinity Original Sin 2's tone was kind of a mixed bag. It had like kind of a lot of uh, silly humor, which I know was uh, more of a thing even in the first Divinity Original Sin. Uh, but with 2, they did start to introduce like a bit more serious character work and, and story elements. Um, and also in, in DOS 2, the main party characters uh, were, were pretty well-defined. Uh, I, I heard it's even better if, like, narratively, if you play as um, one of them rather than creating your own character, which is what I did, because I thought it was like, going to be, like, uh, basically Baldur's Gate 3 at the time that I, I played it, um, in terms of what, what people were saying about it, at least. Um, but uh, there wasn't tons of substantial engagement with the main party characters, uh, the way you'd get in uh, like Bioware's uh, later work, like the the Mass Effect games and, and Dragon Age games, um, I didn't feel super attached to the characters I traveled around with, even if I enjoyed their general personalities. Um, and obviously, the maybe the the most impressive and acclaimed part of Divinity Original Sin Two was the the turn based combat, which kind of mixes like. Uh, tactic style environmental movement and interactions with um, like really deep kind of uh, synergies and like spell interactions and and really deep uh, kind of kits based on whatever your character class was. Um, and I, I did enjoy the the combat in Vinyl Sintu quite a bit, but I thought in practice it also uh, took a bit long and also with with, with the build. Uh, with the builds I went for for my party, it often resulted in just the battlefield just being set completely on fire, and having to like deal with all the repercussions of that. Trying to like pour water on things to like counter that, uh, it, it was absolutely crazy, but uh, genuinely impressive. Like how many different interactions uh, there were between the abilities in that game. So, yeah, Divinity Original Sin Two wasn't my favorite game, and I, I didn't quite push myself through it, but I, I could appreciate. Uh, some of the things that it did well. Uh, so Baldur's Gate 3 takes that uh, satisfying turn-based tactical action uh, from Divinity Original Sin 2, but uh, fleshes it out with like even more complexity that you get from the D&D systems. Like, you can just do actions like uh, jumping to get some space uh, um, between you and an enemy, or get some like elevation on part of like the 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 battle space you can kind of like just push enemies and if there's something like a cliff behind them they'll just fall off and like you can just push things in general in this game it's dnd it has like all these different actions just available to you at all times uh which is great but what's really selling me on Baldur's gate 3 which is what um dos 2 didn't was with the characters which is um where the Dragon Age Origins comparison comes in. So basically here you have uh, a camp that you're frequently returning to. Um, 
uh, where all your party members are at, uh, even the ones that you don't have in your party at the moment. Whereas in Divinity Original Sin 2, you basically just have the parties you took from basically the tutorial area with you for uh, the game. And I, I think there's a way to, to trade uh, them out if you wanted to, but I never got around to that. Here, it's much more easier to kind of trade out party members. Uh, you're constantly building a rapport with them. They're building a rapport with each other. Uh, so there's much more of that kind of interpersonal social role-playing uh, that uh, Bioware really built a name for themselves with Dragon Age and Mass Effect to to enjoy here. Um, and that's really what's basically, uh, along with like that uh, interpretation of Divinity Original Sin's combat uh, with the D&D system, like those two things together are making me just realize like, yeah, this is probably one of the best RPGs ever made, even just 15 hours in. Um, so yeah, uh, this is a, a really impressive game. I've had a lot of cool narrative emergent experiences out of it already. I've already gotten a feel for the combat and had a blast with it. And, uh, yeah, th- th- this game lives up to the reputation. That's crazy. Yeah, I- cause, cause it's, it's reputation is already crazy high. <laughs> like yeah. it's, um, uh, like I, the praise for this game has been nonstop to which points, like this is going to get a little weird. Um, that some game develop uh, developers from other studios were trying to say this game is impossible. Please do not expect us to make games like this again, uh, b- because <laughs> yeah. uh, it, 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 like Baldur's Gate had a really strange history behind it. It was in um, uh, a closed beta and uh, and or a, a an early access form for almost two years. Um, it was paid for by. Uh, Partially Larian, partially their parent companies, and partially venture capital money, which is weird. So it had a um, a development time and an extremely high budget, and a little in the ways of deadlines or or forced crunch, in a way that almost any AAA that is a situation that is almost impossible for any other AAA game. Um, this is weird. This is a unicorn in how. Uh, in, in, in the opportunity that Larian had to develop this and their specific circumstances, to which point I remember when this game was coming out, like other developers were like, look, this is impossible. There's the, the, this is, these are um, in, incredible development circumstances that, I'm, that I've never even heard of before. But their end result is something so excellent and so acclaimed that I know Microsoft is like absolutely flogging themselves uh, that they that that they didn't get uh, a version secured, and especially now since the price that they have to pay Larian to get it on Game Pass is going to be astronomically higher now than it was um, a few weeks or months ago. Um, but 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 th- th- this is like um, the level of role play, the dialogue, the how beloved all the characters are, especially Astarian probably. Um, Astarian's awesome. Yeah, but they're all great, honestly. Each one my, is acted and written very well. My girlfriend has seen enough Astarian stuff and memes. She's already talking about us getting the game and playing through it together. And I think it, I think it was more the jokes and community surrounding the game than the actual <laughs> content of the game, which is which is crazy. But that, uh, but yeah, everything about this game seems like such a successful execution of what people love about D anD. d and the fact that Dungeons and Dragons has been—it's it, it's having a bit of a moment right now, or I should, I should say, it's—it—it—it it, it started as a movement that is, but it's more popular now than it's—I would argue—it's ever been oh. in its in its forty-year plus history. 
I think say that I have for that. Yeah, and at least thirty of my one hundred fifty students was a, is an extremely high percentage who play D anD. d Yeah, that, that's that's crazy to me. And I mean, I yeah. I have played D anD. d very very little, and that's mostly because I love video games more than tabletop games. Um, but uh, which I which again that that's a personal thing and not a uh, and and not the fault of anyone who who loves a good tabletop or no or I agree a, I'm a the same pen, pen so game. I'm the exact same way. Amanda is a huge fan of tabletop adventure games, and I'm just like I I I, th- I probably would have a good time. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. It's just not really working for me but, right now. But I mean, the the confluence of D and D being more popular now than it's ever been, and having one of the greatest RPGs of the modern era. I mean, I mean, I hate to use of all time just this early into its lifespan, Alex. Uh, like being set in a D and D world. Um, and it all happening at once uh, that there's even physical dice rolls represented in the game as mm-hmm. you play it, which um, adds so much tension, which, yeah, which w- is part of the reason like I like Disco Elysium so much is that couple oh. seconds of anticipation with the dice roll. The fact that they got that right here, too, is just mm. chef's kiss. Love it. It, it. it feels like just an incredible game with great writing, great execution, a developer with um with unusually like good support from their uh from their financiers and community support in this uh in this like year plus um uh set of testing this is a perfect storm to make uh, like one of to make an rpg that is that is just breathtakingly good and that all of these things happened at once to create it in in a moment where dnd is has its highest popularity it's ever had it's crazy to me and but and i really want to play it but I have not yet. Although I think the way my girlfriend is mentioning it, <laughs> I, it makes me think maybe I'm getting it for Christmas in a few days. But I, but I, I, but I'm not. I I am not certain. What's fascinating think- is that I've only played this game for two hours, and it will get my game my vote for game of the year. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I and I love Final Fantasy 16 a lot. But Baldur's Gate three is such an absurd accomplishment. Like it, it's almost as you said, like. Other game developers are like, you can't expect this. I'm like, how is this game what it is? Um, even in the very brief time that I played it, because I, I I got to like the first main town and like the interactions I was having and the different like the things it was giving me to do um, in a very brief period of time were just insane. Like, granted, like I I was playing it with my partner and like the two of us together were like, this is kind of overwhelming um, because we're not D and D players and it was a lot, but like it it's so insane all the different things that it can do and the quality of the writing is so high while it's doing it it's i hate to call it an all-timer and two hours of game time but like there is no way that like a game in a long time is going to match the level of like role-playing immersion if that's what we're talking about here that this game provides and it's insane it's absolutely insane i think this is a perfect example of what happens when a outstanding achievement in video game design or in anything matches the moment where it will get maximum impact because Dungeons and Dragons got very, very popular over the pandemic for obvious reasons, because it was a, it was a group activity you could do across and lots of, lots and lots and lots of Dungeons and Dragons games got started over the pandemic. So not only is this the perfect example of this type of game, but it was also released to an audience that was primed for it at the exact right time. The point where this game is crossing over now from our circles, like RPG fan and video game circles, into the mainstream in a way that I don't think it necessarily would have if Dungeons & Dragons hadn't become a much more 
uh, familiar thing to the population at large. It's, I mean, it's the, it's the kind of confluence of events that developers and publishers pray for. And this just nailed every single, every single thing that needed to happen happened for this game. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing how much of a, a AAA game it feels like while being just so distinct in the entire AAA sphere. And so it's also much, it's interesting its thing. And so much clearly just a labor of love. Yeah, yeah, that helps. Mm. It's also interesting, Slosi, what you said that, yeah, other game developers were like, this is impossible. No one else can do this. This is a unique thing. Yeah, that's not going to stop game publishers from being like, we want Baldur's Gate 3. Oh, yeah. So in the next like four to five years, and this could be a good thing or a very bad thing. But in the next four to five years, I think that we're going to start seeing a lot of Baldur's Gate likes uh, as they try to get some of that uh, some of that magic for themselves. And that could turn into some disastrous games or it could also deliver some incredible games that we haven't even heard yet. Yes. I mean, to a degree, every industry is a copycat industry. Uh, and like, like to a degree, um, I, I'm, I'm fascinated with, uh, the games that came out five years after Skyrim did, or the mm-hmm. games that came out five years after the Souls games started getting huge. You'll, you'll always see, um, when a game or a series makes a big splash, then you'll see the, uh, the, the mimics and copycats around one development cycle later, uh, start to emerge. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, for every, uh, uh, for for every Breath of the Wild, there's two Immortals, Phoenix Risings, as it were. Uh, but I, yeah. I I I think we're gonna see Baldur's Gate likes, but I'm not sure they can be this because these uh, circumstances are so wild. 100% agree with you. I don't think we're gonna see Baldur's Gate again, but I think we might see some derivatives that are very interesting. I'm I'm still holding out hope that. Uh, uh, Dragon Age Four Dreadwolf won't be a uh, a a okay. like a towering garbage fire, but I can't. But mm. I I also don't have as much faith that you know uh, EA and Bioware can create the situation that Larian did here. Oh God! But I mean, like it, I have to tell you that when something like this comes out, that is this towering achievement and that is genuinely a good thing, like right down to gameplay, graphics, everything about this game is good. And developers and publishers will want to chase that. That is so much better than when something like games as a service or something becomes big and then everyone starts chasing that crap. Like, I'm glad that if they're going to be jumping on a bandwagon, at the very least, they're going to be jumping on a bandwagon worth getting on. Yeah, if the trend is huge, expansive, intricately written fantasy RPGs, then I I can't be that upset about it. (laughs) Okay, if you must. All right, well... uh listeners alex jono zach uh we just talked about eight of the biggest rpgs of um 2023 uh not in the order that we discussed they were cyberpunk 2077 phantom liberty Baldur's gate 3 zelda tears of the kingdom star trek resurgence final fantasy 16 xenoblade chronicles a future redeemed octopath traveler 2 and sea of stars uh but clearly more than eight rpgs came out in 2023 um before we go into housekeeping and uh and thank the audience do you have any any ones we want to shout out uh i'll, I'll go first um uh street fighter 6's world tour mode is maybe the best yakuza game of 2023 a year where two yakuza games actually did in fact come out one uh, good one bad uh, <laughs> in my opinion yeah you, you can you can go you can go around challenging literally everyone from the uh from ladies walking their dogs to the uh two street vendors to actual gangsters to fights and learn their abilities and you teach ryu how to use a cell phone 
and it's wonderful and uh it's probably my game of the year but rpg fan doesn't cover it alas um i have a few i mean i i said like a dragon machine was one of my games of the year because i think it did and we like we said we have two podcasts about it i'm not going to talk about it a lot but it's like a it's a grand historical epic starring the characters of yakuza as actors playing those roles it's a great idea um it, it came out in japan many years ago this is a remake slash remaster it's really worth playing it's everything the yakuza game is it's just set in a different era um i really enjoyed it i did not like the man who erased his name that's going to be my that's my biggest disappointment of 2023 for me um but have real high hopes for the future uh next month i i, uh, I didn't it well i didn't hate the man who erased his name but it it really was just a yakuza playground where a lot of the playground equipment was this was the same or busted or disappointing. Um, it, I, I think it did have a genuinely moving final scene, though. Yeah, it kind of felt like, I don't know, Yakuza TM. It was just like the most generic Yakuza experience you could possibly think of. Maybe don't um, spend a full 50 bones on it. Yeah, I wouldn't. Um, the only other game that I want to mention that's not an RPG is a, uh, it's a roguelike called 30XDX. It is a Mega Man-like. Uh, 20XDX was released many years ago, which was a very similar idea. Uh, and it's you have one life and you have it's 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 a Mega Man game essentially it's it steals everything from a Mega Man X game it's zero and X are there in different forms the abilities uh that being said it looks real good it plays really well it has a it was released without very much fan for out there I was very surprised that it didn't get uh more traction um but I just loved it it was so much fun and if you love Mega Man like I know many do I think that you deserve uh, I think you should pick up this game and play it for a bit and see if it draws you in because it gave me a lot of hours of pure side-scrolling Capcom-esque enjoyment in 2023. All all the games I really enjoyed from this year that I have played are not from this year outside of the ones we've talked about. So <laughs> some for retro, which I'll talk about it in that section. So, yeah. And I got a couple of shout outs I can give. Uh, one of them, uh, which I reviewed, uh, is called Fading Afternoon, which is the third game from uh, Yeo, which, who is a, a solo uh, indie dev who also just works with a, a small team that helps uh, create like his pixel art and um, uh, promotional material and that kind of thing. Um, it's also, a, I'd say it's also a good candidate for best Yakuza type game of the year. Uh, you play as like an aging Yakuza um who is uh also uh dying um and basically um you're wait is, of... is, is this the same guy as uh uh the friends of ringo ishikawa yeah it sure holy is. moly wow that's why i recognized this okay yeah that, that, that is some yakuza energy holy moly that that's like 70s yakuza movie energy Absolutely. He he's also like been on record saying he's like a huge fan of like old old Yakuza movies and they're, that, they're that's, one of like, his that's like that's like uh that's like beat Takeshi Sonatine early nineties energy. Holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in, in terms of like its gameplay, it's really more of a beat 'em up than an RPG. Uh the combat is uh very just kind of like beat 'em up heavy, like think obviously like a streets of rage or a river city ransom uh but a bit more refined to that and with a a really nice attention to details in like the animations uh, and whatnot um that just make it feel really cool to to pull off different uh maneuvers um so i had a lot of fun with that it for beating them up it never really got old the combat but the, the real appeal is just like the role-playing vibe that the game kind of immerses you in which is 
Um, basically, you're an aging Yakuza let out of prison. Uh, you're dying, so you have like literally your max health goes down as you continue the game. Um, and it just really creates this kind of poetic atmosphere of like, what do you want to do with your life? Do you want to um, try to get back uh, reputation in your old Yakuza game? Do you want to try to catch up with uh, a friend who got let out of prison? Um, do you want to just kind of uh, go fishing and, and have some like peace before you die? Uh, there, there's a lot of different kind of story paths. Nothing is really explained, which makes it kind of... Um, uh, inaccessible in some ways, but in in an extremely interesting way is how I'd put it. I, I um, really, really liked Friends of Ringo Ishikawa, which then, is, then you should which is sort of which is sort of th- that same energy, but instead of being a yakuza, it's a former high school sort of uh, uh, like street gang member. Yeah, uh, exactly. But but yeah, it, it, similar tone, and uh, the, yeah, this sounds exactly up my alley. Yes, yeah, similar existential beat em up. Yes. That is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that that is exactly what it is. So yeah, if that sounds remotely interesting to you, and and you're not kind of um, opposed inherently to kind of obtuse mechanics and needing to kind of figure things out for yourself and and having some uh, negative outcomes come out of that, just like unfamiliarity, definitely recommend it. Uh, another game I'd recommend, uh, who also uh, Neil Chandran reviewed. Uh, is Thirsty Suitors, which is um, kind of like a, it, the story is like a like LGBTQ kind of Scott Pilgrim kind of thing, where you come back um, uh, from living with with uh, your girlfriend. You play as Jala, who's um, Southeast Asian, and um, you experience all these like really interesting and authentically written uh, family dynamics, while also um, dealing with like all of your different exes in these kind of turn-based boss fights um which have these little uh action-based kind of mechanics similar to like a mario rpg or something um combat is is solid but nothing special uh the way you navigate environments is on a skateboard it's kind of like a light tony hawk pro skater jet set radio which is really cool uh but but the real uh appeal here is like how good the writing is and how authentic like the different representations of queer people and south asian families are uh really really cool game uh with a with a great storyline and the last one i'll shout out is uh moon ring which i haven't played a ton of but it's free uh which is always a good appeal and uh it's basically an ultima like uh roguelike created by the co-creator of the fable series so not peter molyneux which might be a, a better selling point for some people, uh, Dean Carter. Um, and yeah, again, I haven't played a ton of it, but uh, in terms of like emulating that old school Ultima feel while feeling uh, like a very modern experience, uh, it, it, it is really impressive and also just looks and sounds very nice. So yeah, those are three games that, uh, three indies that that really stuck out to me this year. Well, I... I uh... I briefly mentioned Street Fighter Six already. There, there's two other RPGs I think I want to uh, talk about before we shut it down. There's Dave the Diver, which is a sort of business sim slash fishing roguelike slash RPG. It's com- it's very very silly, uh, but all but the loop of like fishing in a mysterious uh, shape shifting lagoon in the daytime and then selling the, your catches as sushi in the evening is an extremely satisfying gameplay loop with story and characters that go really unexpected places. You discover a civilization of mer people like before the game's halfway point uh and and things get real weird 
but I, I adored that game. Uh, Nikki wrote an excellent review of Dave the Diver on RPG Fan fairly recently. Um, but uh, that's uh, that is a December review. Way back in January, uh, we got a new main series game in the Fire Emblem series. Fire Emblem Engage came out, um, and uh, and Brian McKenzie reviewed that. But maybe the biggest Fire Emblem fan that I know uh, uh, also really liked it. Um, I, I think that Fire Emblem Engage Engage has maybe the weakest fire emblem story of any of the games i've played uh which is saying something because i uh, i also like perhaps famously disdain fire emblem fates quite a bit but uh um the, the story is is simple like like maybe like saturday morning cartoon level and the character designs are a little over the top uh putting it very very gently but uh, i think this is one of the best playing fire emblem games they've ever made uh, the map design is brilliant. They sort of gently nudge you into the nuances of Fire Emblem combat and then give you a bunch of excellent units with uh, um, some fairly exotic uh, uh, class design for a Fire Emblem game. Uh, uh, like you, you get you have wolf knights and like multiple different forms of spear infantry and uh, and the, uh, the, the 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 sort of royalty characters each have a unique class and it all gets pretty wild. Um, and then between each each battle, you uh, have this sky island that you that everyone hangs out in. You can uh, you there's there's exercise and cooking systems to enhance your stats between battle. Uh, you can meet the spirits of previous Fire Emblem heroes and attach them to uh, up to twelve of your characters like personas that uh, that that give you like transformation sequences. Like you're playing Jean Dark for the PSP. It's completely bonkers over the top for a fire emblem game which is also the most fun i've had playing a fire emblem game since oh <laughs> since awakening in 2012 2013 um so uh it, like fire emblem engage do not go there if you're looking for a for a political nuanced story but go there if you want some like highfalutin strategy rpg action uh so yeah um dave the diver street fighter 6 fire emblem engage come highly recommended for me uh, but even more highly recommended for me uh, is the Retro Encounter podcast, which you're listening to right now. Um, Alex, Jono, and Zach, you guys have been on several episodes of Retro Encounter in 2023. Um, and Jono and Zach, you've been on many since before 2023. But Alex, you're a relative newcomer to RPG fan. Well, uh, while we can we just take a, a, a few minutes to be nostalgic? Did you have a favorite uh, Retro Encounter uh, either panel experience or listening experience this year? It's such a hard question, Slosi, because I've had a few really, really great experiences on Retro this year. Uh, you gave me <laughs> you gave me two episodes to talk about Star Tropics, uh, the edutainment episode we did together. That was so much fun. Um, <laughs> right, that was that was fun. I think my favorite episode, actually, you want to know what my favorite thing I've done this year on the site though was uh, Retro three ninety one Essential Fan Translations. Uh, that is. That episode was the Great most episode. fun I've had. It's the most fun I've had recording. Uh, it, it just was a blast. Everything about that episode just came together perfectly for me. I was so happy with it. So yeah, if you're, uh, that, that's my favorite, my favorite thing I've done this year, not just retro, but a thing at RPG fan. I, I was uh, very tickled to hear a Racing Lagoon discussion because me and my extreme oh, tire quest. Yes. Yeah. My, 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 uh, <laughs> me and my very extremely niche group of friends have been making fun of Racing Lagoon on uh, video game forums since the early 2000s. So yeah, having that appear on Retro Encounter was was very amusing for me. 
Yeah, I think my favorite uh, recording experience on Retro Encounter was probably the Final Fantasy draft, because, um, I mean, that, that was just a blast. I'm still very, very happy with the team I ended up with. I still can't uh, believe I got cut off by the other panelists once each. It seemed impossible. <laughs> I know, it was just like the perfect amount of drama uh, went into that episode. Uh, none of it planned, by the way. Um, so yeah, that, that was a fun experience, but I'll say that probably my favorite game that I played on Retro Encounter, which is probably my favorite game that I finished this year in general, period, uh, was Breath of Fire Dragon Quarter, which is just an absolute masterpiece of a video game. Um, nothing else like it, uh, just couldn't recommend any higher. This is a tough one for me because like, uh, Bloodborne set off a whole a whole problem for me <laughs> um like i i i am about to beat elden ring i mean about i i'm 60 hours in and i'm not even close actually but um i think my f- favorite recording experience was disco elysium um it, it's not uh, i i can't say if it's my favorite or not favorite but i i loved the conversations about the different um experiences we had narratively with with Disco Elysium and Alex and Hillary and Ben all had just like amazing things to say about what is a, an insanely good video game. Uh, if you haven't played Disco Elysium yet, oh my goodness, drop everything else you're doing and go play Disco Elysium because it's it's I, life-changing is, a, is an over-exaggeration, but it's a remarkable game. And the three panelists that I talked to on that one were just just so smart about the way they were talking about it and it was such a good video game uh here here on please play disco elysium maybe this is low-hanging fruit but i really do feel like the best video game i i played for retro encounter and maybe the best video game i've played all year is bloodborne um that game just hits every single note from the tension to the action to the atmosphere um, to the gameplay design and boss design and stage design. I, I It just felt like such a triumph of a video game that I think it was the most fun I've had playing a game for Retro Encounter this year. But uh, my favorite recording experience might be a little harder, might be a little different. Um, I, I, I had so much fun... Uh, I, I had so much fun doing um, a, a Persona 4 episode. That's one of my favorite games of all time. I haven't talked about Persona 4 on a podcast um, since 2017, I think. So, uh, like, and we brought, we brought in a special guest for uh, a Retro Encounter episode, which we've only done, I think, maybe three or four times ever. Uh, we'll be bringing in Alex from Backlog Battle, and um, and and that and doing that just that was the last episode I I I uh, recorded before going on a long break from RPG fan. I had a really rough 2013. 2023 um uh, one of my friends close friends passed away i was hospitalized twice uh it 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 was uh i've had i've had a lot of challenges going on this year but uh i i i'm I'm back with a podcast um ready to talk and record about video games again but i felt like the persona 4 revisited episode was a really really good send-off uh getting me just just i mean i think that um part of my experience in playing video games is talking about what I loved about the games I just played with like-minded friends. And that's why I'm on so many goddamn podcasts. So, uh, uh, thank you, uh, all three of you and, and audience and everyone that's been a panelist this year, 
for being making a, a really great year of Retro Encounter, even though I wasn't there for as much of it as I usually am. Uh, because again, just 2023, it was personally challenging for me. But um, one thing that was not challenging was uh, getting excited to talk about video games. With y'all. So thank you. But now it's time to get excited about the future of Retro Encounter and not just the uh, rest of 2023. Um, coming very soon, we're doing an episode on the remake of Super Mario RPG. That game came out in, I think, November, and it made a pretty big splash. We didn't talk about it in this episode, but it was, I would say, overall quite well received. And I um, I did play it uh, earlier this month and had a really good time. So we're going to talk about uh, Super Mario RPG and its comparisons to the original game, which we did record for episodes of Retro Encounter some years ago. Uh, that's coming next week. Also in January, we're doing two episodes on Moon Remix RPG Adventure, a Ooh. Japanese indie game that uh, was a sort of notorious uh, uh, lost RPG for decades and decades that finally got a worldwide release in 2020. And Zach, you're going to be hosting those episodes, and I'm sure you're uh, excited to talk about it. Oh, I am very excited. I only have like an hour in, but like I'm already interested. So I'm excited to chat about it. Nice. And uh, right around those moon episodes, we're, um, I mean, you, maybe you've noticed this by now. This is episode 397. That's dangerously close to episode 400. We're having episode 400 air also in January. I, uh, hmm, I don't know how much of it I want to get away, but we are going to be playing a very silly game um, on that episode. And I believe the number of episode of credits on that episode is going to be either 17 or 18 which probably breaks a pod, a podcast record for RPG fan. And by episode credits, I mean people listed in the credits of the episode. It's going to be probably at least 17. So please look forward forward to episode 400 coming soon. But you know what? Um, February is also pretty soon. And uh, you, you know what happens in February? Uh, the lunar calendar changes. Starting, I think, February 8th is the Lunar New Year, Year of the Dragon, the luckiest, maybe showiest year in the lunar ca- in the uh, Eastern Asian lu- uh, lunar calendar. <laughs> lunar calendar. Uh, is, is, is it weird that I pronounce that word differently, whether it's I'm uh, talking about the moon or a video game? But I mean, I think everybody does that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, the, the year of the dragon begins in February. So we're doing at least four dragon themed themed episodes back to back, possibly six or seven or eight dragon episodes back to back. We're starting that with um, two episodes on my favorite game of the 2010s, Dragon Quest XI. I adore Dragon Quest XI, but I also haven't played it since it came out in 2018. So I'm going to see exactly how well it holds up for some dragony episodes in uh, February. And right after that, we're going to do um, an episode on Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth, probably my most anticipated game of 2024. Uh, and I'll also, um, Alex, you and I did some Dragon Age Oranges episodes uh, earlier this month that we've mentioned already. But we liked playing Dragon Age Origins so much that we decided to play Dragon Age 2 right after. And so episodes on Dragon Age 2 are also coming in early 2023. Um, sorry, early 2024. I'm, I'm already having the problem where I where the year has changed, but I keep writing the previous year on things like checks and on, and on work forms. We, we, we've all been there. But anyway, uh, listeners, please look forward to Mario RPG, Moon Remix RPG Adventure, episode 400, Dragon Quest XI, Echoes of, of uh, the, an Elusive Age, Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth, Dragon Age 2, and much, much more. Um, also, I mean, Zach, the Suikoden remakes are coming out. We got to do episodes on those. Oh, I'm there immediately. Don't you worry. And speaking <laughs> of Suikoden, I mean, I mean, Aoden Chronicle comes out in April. 
That, that seems like a spoiler cast, right? I mean, like, I'll spoiler cast that on April 23rd. Oh, I'm, I'm here. Hell yes. I, I, will, I will spoiler cast that that thing 15 minutes after credits roll. We gotta have a Baldur's Gate 3 spoiler cast, too, at some we point. Could, you know, alright, if I, if I can play Baldur's Gate 3 in a timely manner, which is not a guarantee, I would love to do a spoiler cast on that as well. So we're just throwing out ideas, brainstorming, previewing. that We always do that at the year-end episode. I'm glad to do it. I'm always excited to talk about uh, video games on podcasts with my RPG fan friends, and there's so much to be to look forward to in 2024 that t- that getting excited about video games is the easy part. But um, the uh, also the easy part, you listeners, is to uh, is to listen. But if you want to put uh, invest a little bit more into RPG fan, you can uh, give us feedback. Email retro at rpgfan.com. You can find RPG fan on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord, YouTube, Twitch, Threads maybe blue sky i'm not sure there's a a lot of ways to interact with rpg fan including the actual website rpgfan.com rpgfan.com slash shop has a shop where you can buy all manner of rpg fan merchandise including mugs shirts uh phone cases uh baby onesies there's a a few 25th anniversary shirts that are going to leave the shop very soon so please get into those and also rpg fan commissioned a book there is an actual book um, of of r- roughly 300 to 350 pages of RPG fan reviews condensed into cards uh, designed by our um, wonderful artistic supervisors, Steph Sabidlo and Mike Salbato, uh, that you can order from Hyperplay. Uh, I think I think it costs um, around 49 pounds and, and ships from the UK, but uh, I, ha- I don't have my copy in my hands yet, but it is on the, on the way, and I'm so excited to read RPG fan's actual book. So if you go to rpgfan.com slash shop, you can get all those shop items I mentioned, plus like an actual book of RPG fan content. That's wild. But speaking of RPG fan content, we also have two other fine podcasts, Random Encounter every two weeks about randomness and what games are playing, and Rhythm Encounter every other two weeks about rhythmness and RPG music. You can review Retro Encounter or those other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or however you listen to podcasts. We love feedback, especially when it's five out of five stars. But um, if you want to give us feedback as individuals, not as a podcast, Maybe you've heard me say this up to 396 times in the past. How can you find us? Uh, let's tell them, starting with you, Zach. Uh, the best way is probably email, ZachW at RPGFan.com. You can also find me on our Discord as ZachW. Now, Alex. You can just email me at AlexFranicek at gmail.com. Now, Jono. You can find me at JLoganRPGFan.com. You can also find me on Mastodon at JonoLogan at Mastodon.social. And you can hear me on Random Encounter uh, every twice a month. Uh, incidentally, check out, I think this is coming out on the Thursday after Christmas. The day after Christmas will be kind of a companion episode to this one, which is the looking ahead to 2024. So that would have been the last episode of Random Encounter. So give that a listen if you, uh, you're look, if you were looking for something to listen to over the break. Excellent. Yeah, we're recording this before Christmas, but I believe this episode will come out on something like the 28th of December. I, I, I might have my, my numbers off a little bit. By, uh, but yeah, that is the um, schedule, the recording schedule of Retro Encounter. Uh, but listeners, if you want to reach out to me, the showrunner of Retro Encounter, you can find me um, at Evoker for Dogs on Blue Sky and Instagram. And I, uh, that, and oh, and also Monsoon Mike and RPG Fans Discord, because I'm going to say this right now, I'm retiring from Twitter in the next few weeks and after january of 2024 you won't be able to find me there anymore and i could not be happier about it. listeners stay off twitter thank you good night and good luck <laughs>